And what we're going to try and do is answer four basic questions over tonight and tomorrow night to show you that that book is indeed true. The first question is, does truth exist? The Bible can't be true if truth doesn't exist. If it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative, you've heard these claims, right? Well, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. I just heard it last week at Michigan State. Oh, this is your truth, I've got my truth. If you, if you can't say there is absolute truth, then you can't say the Bible is true. Of course, if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then you can't say this book is true either. The Grand Design by Stephen Hawking is brand new book. Hawking says that you don't need God to start the universe. Well, if there is no truth, Hawking isn't right either. Now, you can see there's a problem with the there is no truth claim. We're going to cover question one here in just a minute and answer yes. Of course, there's truth and you can know it. The second question we're going to get into is, does God exist? The Bible can't be the word of God if there is no God. If there's no God, throw that book away and every other book that talks about miracles or God because God doesn't exist. I hope to show you tonight that God does exist, that there really is a spaceless, timeless immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there. I hope to show you two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument that this being exists. Now, these arguments are taught in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know them. In fact, we won't be referencing the Bible at all tonight for evidence. The third question is, are miracles possible? If miracles are not possible, throw the Bible away in every other book that talks about miracles. But Tonight, I hope to show you that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. Then and only then can we get to the key question, and that is question four. Is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if we have an accurate, historically reliable account of miracles occurring in the first century to a man named Jesus and his apostles in the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we now call the New Testament. Did they really tell us the truth about what happened back then? Or were these books written by religious people who had an axe to grind and weren't really telling the truth? If we can answer yes, that the documents are true, I think we can say the entire Old Testament is true as well. Why? Who's in the New Testament that can authenticate the Old Testament? Jesus. If Jesus really is God, as the New Testament claims he is, now that's a big if, but if he really is, then whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God, so if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Now, this is the basic argument in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Actually, in the book, there are 12 points, but for simplicity, when we're doing this verbally, four points will suffice to kind of give you the overall flow of the argument. Now, we have a TV show, as Matt mentioned, that goes through... Uh, these arguments, uh, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I'm amazing with these titles, aren't I? And, uh, and I'll show you the intro here. You'll see these four questions come up. Here's the intro. That TV show is on every Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, so that'd be 8 here and midnight here on DirecTV Channel 378. How many people here have DirecTV? Can I see your hands? DirecTV. Okay, like seven of us. <laughs> Why not the rest of us? Come on, friends, don't let French watch cable. 
you want to see I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you need DirecTV. You can also get NFL ticket there, you know. Okay? Uh, but you can, uh, does anyone have Sky Angel? That's kind of a, a Christian satellite service. If you do, Sky Angel, Wednesday nights, 10, channel 114. Uh, you can watch the program actually live on the internet. If you go to our website, it'll take you another, another site to show you. So if you're bored one night and want to see what we do on there, you can go to that uh, website at that time. We're also on radio every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. would be 9 a.m. here on the AFR radio network. There's 144 stations around the country. I don't know what they are, but you can go to that website, find out what they are, or you can listen live on the internet or in podcast. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. That's why our ministry is called crossexamined.org. Now, for me to cover all of this material here, here's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and cover these four points, and, and then if I time this just right, we'll have absolutely no time for your questions. Um, no, we'll have time for your questions. What we're going to do tonight is uh, try and cover points one and two and then take questions, and then tomorrow night we'll review points one and two and do points three and four and then take questions again. Even with that amount of time, for me to summarize the entire book and the amount of time we have is impossible. Well, I Actually, I probably could do it because I'm originally from New Jersey, okay? You see, I speak at 150 words a minute with gusts to 350, okay? I move really quickly, so if you can't keep up, the book is available back there on the book table as well as a 10-part DVD set, which goes into all this material in a lot more detail than what we can do here tonight. And I want to point out, by the way, that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVD sets will go to Feed Needy Children. Mine, Okay. <laughs> Just so you know, I've got three sons. Two of them are in college, so I need some help. In fact, my oldest one just graduated from University of South Carolina. How about those Gamecocks? Huh? Took out that Crimson Tide. Rolled over that tide. Anyway, he is now an Air Force officer. He is in, uh, he is in San Angelo, Texas. What, about six hours west of here? Anyone from San Angelo here? All right. One, two. I've uh, never been there, but he's there right now in intelligence school. The second son is also in Air Force ROTC. He's a junior. The third son just went to South Carolina. They're all Gamecocks. They followed one another down there, which means right now my wife and I are empty nesters. Took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. <laughs> That's how long it took to change the locks. Actually, they're great kids. Yeah, any empty nesters in here? We've got a few empty nesters. You notice how clean the house stays? When they're gone, they come back, though. Like the Tasmanian devil, they come back. Anyway, so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start here at point one. Does truth exist? You guys ready to go? Ready? Point one, does truth exist? It seems like a logical place to start, right? Well, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? I mean, Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And what did Nicholson say? You can't handle the truth. Well, there's a lot of people in our culture who can't seem to handle the truth. They're saying there is no truth. They're saying it's true for you, but not for me. They're saying all truth is relative. We'll deal with those claims in just a minute, but let's define what we mean by truth. If we're going to talk about it, let's define it. Real easy definition of truth is truth is telling it like it is. If I say here we are uh, near Texas A&M, that would be telling it like it is. If I said here we are at uh, Montclair State where I'll be next week, that wouldn't be telling it like it is. Uh, or truth is what corresponds to its referent. If when referring to this book, I say this is a black Bible, that would be true. If I say it's a white Quran, that wouldn't be true. Or truth is what corresponds to its object. Or truth is what corresponds to reality. These are all good definitions of truth. Now, some of you are going, uh, Frank, I came in here for this. 
This is so obvious. Why are you starting here? Because in today's culture, our first duty is to state the obvious. There's a lot of people out there who deny there's truth. We're going to see here that there is truth and that you can know it. Now, hold on to this definition of truth for just a minute. We're going to come back to it. Let's talk about the law of non-contradiction for a minute. The law of non-contradiction is a fundamental rule of all thought. It helps us discover what is false. And basically, the law of non-contradiction, a fundamental law of logic, says opposite ideas cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense. For example, the earth can't be both round and not round at the same time and in the same sense. It's either round or it's not round, but it's not both. Everyone with me on this? Now, some people will say, but wait, this law of non-contradiction does not apply to religious claims. Religious claims are not in the area of fact. They're in the area of faith, they'll say. I think that's nonsense. In fact, let me show you the most basic religious claim. Here it is. The man on the right is probably the most famous atheist in the world today. His name is Richard Dawkins. He teaches at Oxford University. He wrote the book, The God Delusion. Very witty, very, very good writer. He says God does not exist. The man on the left is equally as witty and a good writer. His name is John Lennox. He also teaches at Oxford. He says God does exist. Here's my question for you. Can both of these men be right about this particular point? No, they both can't be right. Look, if Lennox is right, Dawkins is wrong. If Dawkins is right, Lennox is wrong. But they're both not right and they're both not wrong. Right? Okay, so who's right here? You guys are having trouble. It's Lennox. But I'm going to give you some evidence Lennox is right. The only point I want to make here is that the law of non-contradiction applies to religious claims as well. Either Dawkins is right or Lennox is right, but they're both not right. And they're both not wrong. Now... This law of non-contradiction is undeniable. Even those who deny it use it. Suppose you catch a friend of yours in a contradiction and you say to your friend, hey, that violates the law of non-contradiction. It's false. It can't be true. And your friend just doesn't want to hear it. In fact, he says, I don't even believe in the law of non-contradiction. What should you say to him? You do believe in it. He's going to say, no, I don't. You say, you do believe in it. He's going to say, no, I don't. You say, you do believe in it. You're using it right now to contradict me. You see, you can't think a thought without the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is to thinking what your eyes are to seeing. You can't see without eyes and you can't think without the law of non-contradiction. It's just part of the furniture of the universe. It's a self-evident rule of logic. It's one of the rules you use to discover everything else. Now, there was a great Muslim philosopher years ago who had a great way of convincing those who denied the law of non-contradiction that they were wrong... His name was Avicenna, and here's what Avicenna said. He said, anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten, and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. (laughs) Right? Being beaten is not the same as not being beaten, and being burned is not the same as not being burned. A little extreme, but you get the point. Now, hold on to this law of non-contradiction. We're going to use it again here in a minute. Let's go back to truth. I'm here to say that all truth is absolute truth. Something that is true is true for all persons at all times in all places. There are no relative truths. You say, wait, I can think of one right now. Like what? Well, today it was pretty warm here down here at Texas A&M. But I'm sure it was pretty cold up there in Fairbanks, Alaska. We feel warm. They feel cold. That's relative. No, it's not relative at all. It's absolutely true for all people at all times and all places that when referring to you today, you felt warm, if in fact you really did. And it's absolutely true for all people at all times and all places that we're referring to the people in Fairbanks, Alaska today, they felt cold, if in fact they really did. Remember, truth is what corresponds to its referent. Now, when you say all truth is absolute, people will claim that you are very judgmental. 
In fact, they will say things to you like this. They'll say, wait a minute, there is no truth. Don't you tell me there's truth. There's no truth out there. In fact, you can't know truth either. You think you know the truth? Nobody knows the truth. They'll say all truth is relative. One of my favorites is this. It's true for you, but not for me. Well, Buddhism may be true for you, but Christianity is true for me. Or Christianity may be true for you, but Buddhism is true for me. What do you say to that? Or they might say, no one has the truth. You think you have the truth? You're ignorant and arrogant. Nobody has it. And whether you're an atheist or a Christian, you might get this one. You know what? You just ought not judge. Especially if you're a Christian. Someone will say, hey, why are you judging? Jesus said, don't judge. Stop judging. Now, if you can't answer these claims, then you can't say this book, the Bible, is true. But, of course, Stephen Hawking couldn't say his book was true either if we can't answer these claims. So how do we answer these claims? If you don't get anything else out of what we talk about, just get this one idea down in the next five minutes. I don't care whether you're an atheist or Christian, anywhere in between, it'll be worth your time. I did not learn this until I was 33 years old in my second graduate program to show you what a doofus I was. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know I knew it. I knew the law of non-contradiction, but I didn't know how to apply it. You see, every one of these statements and many others you hear in the culture today violate the law of non-contradiction. In other words, they can't be true because they're, they're self-defeating. They violate their, their own standard. So if you don't get anything else out of what we talk about here today, learn this one little tactic. This is your greatest tool in answering these objections. Simply apply the claim to itself. Apply the claim to itself. Let me give you an example of this. Suppose uh, someone were to walk in here and say, I can't speak a word in English. What would you say to that person? Yeah, didn't you just say that in English? Can everybody see that this is a self-defeating statement? It violates itself. When you apply that claim to itself, it self-destructs. This is like saying there are no sentences in the English language longer than three words. Well, you just uttered one. Or it's like saying, here's a practical one, my parents had no kids that lived. Some of you will get that tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Or everything I say is a lie. See, these are all self-defeating statements. They violate the law of non-contradiction so they can't be true. Now, we call this in the book, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we call this the roadrunner tactic because it reminds us of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. What's Wiley Coyote's only mission in life? Catch the roadrunner and eat him. But roadrunner is just a little bit too fast, a little bit too smart. Just as it looks like Coyote's about to grab him, roadrunner stops short of the cliff. Coyote goes, he has no power on his microphone. No, he's back now. For that split second, he's hanging in midair until he realizes what? He's got no ground to stand on, and he plummets to the valley floor in a heap. That's exactly what you can do to people who utter self-defeating statements. You can show them their statement has no ground to stand on. It's baseless. Its foundation crumbles. It violates itself. I was listening to a radio program not long ago. A guy called in the radio program after the host was arguing with a whole bunch of people on the air about what, what truth is. A guy called in. And said, hey, Jerry, Jerry, there is no truth. I picked up the phone I wanted to dial. Get on. I kept dialing. Busy, 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 busy. I wanted to get on and say, hey, Jerry, to the guy who said there's no such thing as truth, is that true? Do you see how this statement violates itself? Anyone who says there is no truth, simply apply the claim to itself. Ask them, is that true? 
Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it's true that there is no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true. But it claims to be true. By the way, with this one little tactic, you look like a super genius. (laughs) How about this one? You hear this one all the time. There is no such thing as absolute truth. What do you say to that one? Apply the claim to itself. Yeah, just say, are you absolutely sure? I mean, or say... Is that an absolute truth? Because it claims to be. Once again, you look like a super genius. Here's my favorite one. It's true for you, but not for me. Uh, Christianity is true for you, but Buddhism is true for me. What do you say to that? This one is also logically self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If someone ever says to you, it's true for you, but not for me, simply ask, hey, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody. Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. (laughs) But that's because it violates itself. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this one. If somebody says true for you, but not for me, you say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller one day and say, uh, look, the economy's down. I need a little bit of money out of my account. Give me $100,000 out of my account, would you? Bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, you only have $47.12 in your account. It's very easy to get the money. You look back at the teller and you go, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. You're going to get the money? Or you're driving a little fast down the highway. You're going 90 and a 55. Cop sees you, pulls you over, walks up to your window, knocks on the glass, put the window down. He looks down at you and he says, you're going 90 and a 55. It's very easy to get out of a ticket. You simply look back up at him and you go, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. And you speed away. Can't give you a ticket if it's not true for you, can he? No. If it's true you were going 90 at that time, that's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to you. I go to a lot of churches, and I'll ask church members, I'll say, do you believe this book is true? And most people will go, yes. And then I'll ask them, why? You know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Because I have faith. Does your faith change whether or not this book is true? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? Your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. Either God exists or he doesn't, regardless of what you believe about him. I mean, does he exist for you and not for Richard Dawkins? No, either God exists or not, independent of what you think about it. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. Your faith doesn't change a thing about it. Well, what's all this talk in the, in the Bible about faith then? Because there's, a, there's two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is evidence-based. Evidence that God exists. Evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Belief in is a step of your will. It's not a step of your mind. It's a step of your will. And when Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind, step of the will, putting your trust in God. The Bible tells you you should know whether it's true or not. And then once you do know it's true, then you put your trust in it. But that's a step of the will. Even James, the book of James, James, uh, Jesus' half-brother says, even the demons know that God exists, but they don't put their trust in him. So there's a difference between belief that and belief in. But all the belief that in the world, according to Christian theology, doesn't get you saved. Because God's not going to force anybody into heaven against their will. How about this one? There is no truth in anything but science. 
Stephen Hawking says this in a certain way, and so does Richard Dawkins. What's the problem with the claim? Apply the claim to itself. This is the interactive portion of the program. What's that? Yes, can you prove that scientifically or just say, is that a scientific truth? No, that's not a scientific truth. That's a philosophical claim. And what's so often forgotten is that you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. Unfortunately, as Einstein himself said, the man of science is a poor philosopher. In fact, most of the argument between the Darwinists and the intelligent design people is not a debate over evidence. Everybody's looking at the same evidence. You know what it's a debate over? It's a debate over philosophy. It's a debate over what, how will we define science? That's a philosophical issue. And how will we interpret the data after we define it? All data needs to be interpreted. In fact, I wrote an article not long ago. It's on townhall.com. It's also on our website called Science Doesn't Say Anything Scientists Do. All data needs to be interpreted. And you can't do science without philosophy, unfortunately. As we'll see a little bit later when we look at Hawking's book, he is a very poor philosopher. Hey, when you get a PhD, what does the PH stand for? Philosophy. Philosophy of physics, philosophy of biology, doesn't matter. Philosophy undergirds everything we do. And this is a self-defeating statement. How about this one, Kant? Kant said you can't know the real world. How many heard of Immanuel Kant? Okay, if you haven't heard of Immanuel Kant, he's probably affected your thinking more than you know. In fact, between Kant and Hume, two of the great philosophers from the, of the past 200, 250 years, have had more of an impact on our culture than probably to any other philosophers from that period. And Kant basically said, you can't know the real world. Why? Because there's a real world out there, but your mind is in here. And when the phenomena from the real world gets into your mind, it gets there through your sense data. But your mind categorizes the data so you can't know the real world in itself. You can only know what your mind does to it. So you can't know the real world. This has led to skepticism and all modern philosophy goes through Kant. You want to understand everybody after about 1800? You've got to understand Kant. What's the problem with the claim? Apply the claim to itself. He says, you can't know the real world. My question for Kant is, then how do you know that about the real world? How come Kant can't know about the real world, but we can't? <laughs> Notice that? He says he can't know about the real world, namely that you can't know anything about it. Well, if he can't know, why can't we? Kant is self-defeating at its very foundation. How about this one? You should doubt everything. This is a skeptical claim. What's the problem with the claim? Hey, should I doubt that? Why are skeptics skeptical, skeptical of everything but skepticism? Now, how many people in here, I don't care whether you're an atheist, a Christian, or somewhere in between, how many in here at times doubt your own worldview? I'm raising my hand because I doubt my own worldview, okay? I'm not absolutely sure Christianity is true. I could be wrong. I'm a fallible human being. Maybe I got something wrong. And maybe during the Q&A, maybe you guys see something I, I, I got wrong here. Bring it up. But, you know, most of the time when I'm having doubts, I realize my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. In other words, I'm having a bad day. And so I'm thinking, I don't even know if there's a God. In fact, a friend of mine who speaks on college campuses a lot says, he's a Christian, but he says, before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I'm an atheist. <laughs> I mean, he, he's emotionally way down. And some days I'm emotionally way up and faith is fine. And other days I'm down. So what's changed? Have the facts changed? No, facts don't change. What's changing? I'm changing. Some days I'm having good days. Other days I'm having bad days. 
And when I realized that, I realized the evidence is pretty good. What I'm, what's happening here is I'm changing. So maybe I ought to start doubting my doubts here. Because my doubts are emotional. I'm the one changing. The facts don't change. See, if I start doubting my doubts, then I'm back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. Okay, this is the granddaddy of them all. You ought not judge, especially thrown back against Christians. Forget what Jesus said for a second on it. What's the problem logically with the claim? Yeah, it's a judgment. So the next time somebody says you ought not judge, put your hands on your hips and say, then why are you judging me for judging? For not to judge, you're judging me. Everybody makes judgments. Can't avoid making judgments. Atheists make judgments. Richard Dawkins makes judgments. He makes a judgment. There is no God. We got here through some cosmic accident. There is no objective morality. These are all judgments. You have to make a judgment to be an atheist. You have to make a judgment to be a Muslim. You have to make a judgment to be a pantheist. You have to make a judgment to be an agnostic. You have to make a judgment no matter what you're doing. The question isn't whether or not you should make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? Now, what did Jesus say about making judgments? Judge not, right? Matthew chapter 7. Let's assume the New Testament documents are reliable for a minute. We'll get to that tomorrow night, but let's assume they are. What did Jesus say? He said, judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It is a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem in your life, get it out of your life first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. But it would be complete suicide to make no judgments. Elsewhere, Jesus says in John 7, 24, he says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You've made 100 judgments in the past 24 hours between right and wrong, good and evil, safe choices from dangerous choices. Again, everybody makes judgments. The only question is, are your judgments true? Now, Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for the people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in Jesus' day? Who? The Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious and political leaders of the day. They ruled Israel. And Jesus went after them. Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! He went after the Pharisees, and he called them some pretty nasty things, didn't he? If you don't think so, read Matthew 23. What does Jesus say in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, the religious and political leaders of the day? He says, what are you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You look great on the outside. On the outside, you're whitewashed tombs. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? Sweet and gentle Jesus said all this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Okay? Can't we all just get along, boys and girls? No, that's not Jesus. Jesus was not Mr. Rogers for you older folks in here. Jesus was more like a drill sergeant when he needed to be. He called people on the carpet when they needed to be called on the carpet. Yeah, there were sometimes he was sweet and sensitive, and other times he was tough. 
What's the definition of maturity? The appropriate behavior at the appropriate time. And Jesus exhibited it. Sometimes you need to get in people's faces. Because if you don't, all you're doing is enabling them. Sometimes you have to be tough. Sometimes you've got to call it like it is. And Jesus did that. So don't buy into this soft soap, sissy pants Jesus that you hear in the culture today. Jesus was tough. He needed to be. He was the standard of truth. Now, there's many more of these that we could go through, but we want to get to the God issue here. So this Roadrunner tactic is a built-in lie detector test for you. It's built right into your mind, the law of non-contradiction. And this lie detector test kind of reminds me of Homer Simpson. Check this out. Now we're going to run a few tests. This is a simple lie detector. I'll ask you a few yes or no questions, and you just answer truthfully. Do you understand? Yes. Can everybody see that as a self-defeating statement, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, very good. Let's sum this up. Here is the truth about truth. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. You can believe everything's true, but everything can't be true. You can believe the earth's flat if you want. Doesn't mean it is. And objective truths can't be denied without being affirmed. Suppose somebody says to you, look, there are no objective truths. What should you say to them? Use the roadrunner tactic. Say, is that an objective truth, that there are no objective truths? Because if it is an objective truth, then it defeats itself. If it's not an objective truth, if it's just in you, the subject, in other words, it's just your subjective opinion, then why should I believe it? You can't get away from truth. It's out there. So hopefully you see now that at this point, the Bible could be true, but so could, so could Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking be right at this point. Yeah, there is truth. In other words, postmodernism faults. It's pretty idiotic to say there is no truth. That's what basically postmodernism says. Well, that's a truth claim. So postmodernism is false. Now, what about point two? Does God exist? This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening and then go to your questions. And when we talk about God, we've got to define what we mean by God. I'm talking here about a theistic God. What's a theistic God? That's a God who's beyond the world, who created the world and sustains the world. A theistic God is kind of like a painter is to a painting. Uh, Michelangelo paints the painting. His attributes are expressed in the painting, but Michelangelo is not the painting. The worldview that believes Michelangelo or God is the painting would be called pantheism. I'm God, you're God, we're all God. In fact, let's take a look at three major religious worldviews into which you can pour most of the world's religions. Not all, but most. Uh, You see hands under the world there. And then a hand in the world in the second one, and then no hand, just a world in the third one. The hand in, uh, under the world there is called theism. God made all. God creates the universe and sustains it to this day, but he's not the universe. That's uh, theism, and Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are major theistic religions. The next one, pantheism, the hand in the world, uh, means that God is all. Pantheism. I'm God, you're God, we're all God. The world is God. Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, and the New Age are all pantheistic religions. You know Zen Buddhism. Use the false loop. The whole Star Wars series is pantheistic. There's a good side and a bad side, but there's no real personal God out there. That's pantheism. I'm God, you're God, we're all God. Okay? The third major worldview is atheism. You don't see a hand at all, you just see a world. Religious humanists would be considered atheists or uh, would be considered uh, in that category. 
Now, if you define religion as someone's explanation for ultimate reality, how we got to where we are and where we're going, then everybody, to a certain extent, is religious. Richard Dawkins is religious. He has an idea of how we got here and where we're going. We got here through a cosmic accident, and we're going nowhere. Everybody also, by the way, is a fundamentalist. You say, I thought just Christians and Muslims were fun. No, everyone's a fundamentalist. Oh, we have different fundamentals, but Richard Dawkins has fundamentals. Again, he thinks there is no God. He thinks that there is no objective morality. These are all fundamentals. And everybody, to a certain extent, has faith. Now, I'm talking about faith in the sense Richard Dawkins would use it. Richard Dawkins says, if you don't have evidence for your worldview, you have faith. Well, in my view, I think there's a lot of evidence for the Christian worldview. Therefore, you just need a little bit of faith to believe it. That's why we call the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Because I think atheism cannot explain the world around us. Therefore, there's very little evidence for it. And therefore, you need a lot more faith to believe it. Now, let me give you some arguments for a theistic God. And there are more than these, but these are the three we concentrate on the book, or on in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and these are the ones we'll zone in on here tonight. The first is from the beginning of the universe known as the cosmological argument. Cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. It says if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The second argument is from design, known as the teleological argument. And telos is the Greek word meaning design or purpose. It says if there's design in the universe and design in life, there must have been a designer. Now, these two arguments are scientific in nature. You can get evidence for these arguments by either looking out into a telescope or looking into a microscope, which we'll do. But the third argument is not scientific at all. It's more philosophical in nature, yet it's the argument that every one of us has known since we were very small children. And it's the argument from morality known as the moral argument. And the moral argument says that if there's one thing morally wrong out there, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to kill six million Jews in a holocaust, then there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no God, that's just your opinion against Hitler's opinion. If there's no standard beyond humanity then one person's opinion is no better than anyone else's. We'll get to that argument later, but let's start at the beginning with the cosmological argument. And many say this points to the big bang. Now, some Christians go, uh, uh, you know, Frank, uh, we're Christians here. We don't believe in the big bang. You guys don't believe in the big bang? I believe in the big bang. I just know who banged it. Okay. The evidence for the Big Bang is indeed quite good. You even have Stephen Hawking, an atheistic scientist, saying almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a, begin, had a Big Bang. In other words, space, matter, and time had a beginning. Now, well, what about Hawking's new book, The Grand Design? Doesn't he say you don't need God to, to, to have that beginning? We'll get there. Hold on. But Hawking admits that the universe had a beginning. A colleague of his, Alexander Vilenkin, a Russian cosmologist, put it this way. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Two interesting words in this quote. First word is the word proof. Very unusual for scientists to use the word proof. Normally they say the evidence suggests, the evidence points to. When they say proof, they say the evidence is quite strong. The other interesting word is the word problem. Why is it a problem that there is a cosmic beginning? Because if space, matter, and time had a beginning, it would seem 
a rational inference to say that the cause must be outside of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Now, when you think of a spaceless, timeless, and material cause, that gets awfully close to the G word. Scientists don't want to go there. In fact, Einstein didn't want to go there. Einstein didn't want there to be a beginning when he had very good evidence that his theory of general relativity pointed to an absolute beginning, he did what a third grader wouldn't do in math in order to avoid it, which we'll see here in just a minute. What is the evidence that is having just about every cosmologist saying the universe and time itself had a beginning? Here's the scientific evidence. There's philosophical evidence, too. This is just the scientific evidence. This is all from chapter 3 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The acronym SURGE will help you remember it, S-U-R-G-E. Each stands for a different line of evidence. We'll start with the second law of thermodynamics. I'm just going to list them now, and then we'll go through them individually briefly. So I'll just list them, explain them later. The U stands for the fact that the universe is expanding. The R stands for the radiation afterglow. The G stands for the great galaxy seeds. And E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. These five lines of scientific evidence are having virtually everyone agree, yes, space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing. Let's take a look at each one of these. We'll start with the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says the universe is running down. It's running out of usable energy. As time goes on, the amount of energy is being used up in this universe. All scientists know that one day that sun up there is going to burn out because there's only so many hydrogen atoms in it. But don't worry about it. It's several billion years from now. Now, you were hoping it would burn out earlier this summer, I'm, I, I I assume, because it gets awfully hot down here in College Station. But no, we got quite a ways to go. You say, well, how does this show the universe had a beginning? Well, think of the universe as a dying flashlight. If I were to take a flashlight right here and turn it on, and then we were to leave and come back tomorrow night, what would be the strength of the beam coming out of the flashlight tomorrow night? It would be weak if not dead. Why? Because there's only so much juice in those batteries. Well, what if I turned the flashlight on an infinitely long time ago. Would there be any light coming out of it now? No, it'd be out of juice already. Well, you can think of the universe as having batteries. If we had turned the universe on an infinitely long time ago, there would be no sun right now. It would have burned out a long time ago. But since we still have the sun and we still have energy here, the universe must have had a beginning. This is also called, by the way, the law of disorder or entropy. Things go to disorder as time goes on. The second law of thermodynamics is why we have to maintain this church, why we have to maintain uh, the rug here and paint. And the second law of thermodynamics is why you have to maintain your car. It runs down. You have to put gas in it. It runs out of gas. The second law of thermodynamics even affects us personally. It's responsible for when we get older, we get dresser disease. That's when our chest falls into our drawers. Okay? That's the second law of thermodynamics. Now, the New Testament even talks about this. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, says the creation is in bondage to decay. Then you read in Revelation that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where the bondage to decay will be overcome. If Christian theology is true, one day, new heaven and a new earth, you won't run down, you won't get dresser disease, you won't get tired, none of those things. If it's true, haven't gotten there yet, but if it's true, that's where we're going. In fact, if you, had, if you could sum up the theme of the Bible in one word, what would it be? Redemption. You have paradise lost in Genesis Paradise regained in Revelation, the story in between is the story of redemption. That's the big picture right there. And if it's true, 
there will be redemption ultimately. So the second law of thermodynamics shows beyond any reasonable doubt the universe had a beginning. The U in surge stands for the fact that the universe is expanding. Does anyone know who that guy up there in the corner is with the pipe? That's Edwin Hubble. Yeah, back in the 1930s, I guess they thought it was neat to have your picture taken with a pipe. He has a telescope named after him, as you know, circling the earth right now. But back in 1929, the the telescope Hubble had was this 100-inch telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory above Pasadena, California. And in 1929, Hubble is looking out this telescope, and he notices that all the light from the galaxies, or the galaxies are all moving away from us. And how did he know that? Because the light from the galaxies had a red shift to it. If the galaxies were moving toward us, the color would be blue, but they were all red and moving away. So Hubble deduced, wait a minute, if they're moving away now, in other words, the universe is expanding now, if we could go back in time, we would see all the galaxies collapse back, not to the size of a basketball, not to the size of a pinhead, but mathematically and logically, it would collapse back to nothing. So once there was nothing, and then the entire universe exploded into being, if time were reversed, the universe would collapse back to nothing. Now, good scientific theories predict future discovery. Scientists in 1948 predicted, partially on account of this, that the universe began in a great explosion. And that's when Sir Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist, coined the term the Big Bang. He did it derisively. What are you going to say? That this whole universe came into existence with some sort of Big Bang? Because he was a believer in the steady state theory. That's the theory the universe is static and eternal. So it was predicted in 1948... And scientists thought that if it did begin in a great explosion, there should be remnant heat from the initial explosion still out there. But nobody bothered to look for it until two scientists working at Bell Labs in Homedale, New Jersey, discovered it by accident. Here they are, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias. They discovered the radiation afterglow from the initial Big Bang explosion. What are we talking about here? This is the remnant heat left over. It's just a couple of degrees above absolute zero, but they found it. It's literally the smoking gun to the Big Bang. Another illustration of the radiation afterglow. You ever watching TV at night with the lights out? What do you see when you turn the TV off? You see a glow coming off the TV. That's radiation afterglow. The TV's cooling off. Well, the universe is still cooling off. These guys found this remnant heat. They won Nobel Prizes for it in 1978. Agnostic astronomer Robert Jastrow, after this discovery was made, basically said anyone who believes in the steady-state theory can't believe it anymore. This has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas. But these scientists weren't done yet. They thought that if the explosion really occurred, there should be very fine temperature variations in that radiation afterglow in the early universe that allowed the galaxies to form to the present day, but they had no way of measuring the temperature variations from Earth. Too much atmospheric interference. They were going to have to put a satellite up. This leads us to our fourth line of evidence, the great galaxy seeds. They had a satellite ready to go. They were going to put it up on the space shuttle in the 1980s, but in 1986, the Challenger exploded off the launching pad. They had no way to get the satellite up. So they redesigned the whole satellite. They made it half its original size. In 1989, they launched it on a French Titan rocket and put it into orbit. It circled the Earth for three years taking measurements. They needed three years of data measuring the temperature variations in the radiation afterglow. Finally, by means of their satellite called COBE, which stands for Cosmic Background Explorer, 
they found temperature variations that were down to one part in 100,000. The leader of the expedition, this man, George Smoot, who now teaches at UCAL Berserkly, said, <laughs> said, we found the machining marks of the creator. He said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. This is, that was the headline in Time Magazine, May 1992. Uh, Stephen Hawking on the cover of the book said, the scientific discovery of the century, if not all time. Now, I had never heard of this discovery until I started studying cosmology. But Hawking is saying this is amazing. Now, what does this say about Darwinism? Well, absolutely nothing. Darwinism deals with biology. Yes, but I hear people saying all the time that if Darwinism is true, we don't need God. I don't, I don't follow that. Because let's say Darwinism is 100% true. I don't think it is. In fact, there's a couple chapters in our book where we deal with some of the problems with it. But let's assume for the sake of argument it's 100% true that after the first life came into existence, natural selection took over and here we all are. You still need a designer in the very beginning of the universe. You need a creator of the universe and you need a designer. See, when you've got temperature variations down to one part in 100,000, if they were any different, we wouldn't be here. You realize somebody fine-tuned this universe. First of all, the Big Bang was not a chaotic explosion. It's not like we take pre-existing material and blow it up and it goes everywhere randomly. That's not the Big Bang. The Big Bang was not the, the, the explosion of pre-existing material. The Big Bang was the creation of material, time, and space itself. The Big Bang was not an explosion into space. The Big Bang was the creation of space. And the explosion was a highly fine-tuned event. It's as if somebody was shepherding the process through. We'll see more when we get to the teleological argument. But this discovery right here shows, beyond any reasonable doubt, it seems to me, you need a designer. Now, the E in surge stands for Einstein. And Einstein knew back in 1917 that his theory of general relativity showed, beyond any reasonable doubt, that space, matter, and time had a beginning. That space, matter, and time were correlative. That you can't have one without the other. That they came into existence together. But in 1917, Einstein figured this out and he didn't like it. He called the result irritating. To which Robert Jastrow, an agnostic astronomer, many years later said, irritating? That's strangely emotional language for a discussion about some mathematical formulas. Why should you find general relativity irritating? Because it showed an absolute beginning. It was getting too close to the G word. So in order to avoid an absolute beginning, the great Einstein wanted to have a static universe. So he put a fudge factor into his equations called the cosmological constant in order to keep the universe static and eternal. Now, in order to do this, the great Einstein divided by zero. Now, what are you told in third grade? Never divide by zero. You can go straight to hell for that. Well, the great Einstein divided by zero. Well, in the 1920s, mathematicians are looking at his equations going, Al, I think you've got an algebraic error in here. I think your original general relativity equations were correct. Then in 1929, Hubble's looking through his telescope. He sees the red shift in the light. He calls Einstein up and he says, Al, or Dr. Einstein. He says, what you predicted in 1917, I'm observing through my telescope right now. You predicted an expanding universe in your original general relativity equations. I see it. Why don't you come out to Mount Wilson out here in California? You can see it for yourself. So in 1931, Einstein made his way out to Mount Wilson and he looked through Hubble's telescope. In fact, who's that behind him? That's Hubble. See the pipe? 
After Hubble, I mean, after Einstein saw the red shift in the light, he got off the telescope and he said, I now see a necessity of a beginning. He said the universe did have a beginning. All I'm interested now is to find the mind of God. The rest are details. Now, Einstein was not a Christian. He denied being a pantheist. He also denied being an atheist. So nobody really knows what Einstein believed personally. But his theory of general relativity, which has been shown accurate over and over again to more than five decimal points. In fact, I just read an article the other day on it. General relativity, shown accurate again, has shown beyond any reasonable doubt that space, matter, and time had a beginning. In fact, it's so sure that if Einstein were here today and you were to say, Al, I don't think the universe had a beginning, you know what he'd probably do? He'd probably do this. Because it did have a beginning. This led this man, Robert Jastrow, the man I've, I've mentioned a couple of times already, to write a book in 1978. Jastrow sat in the same chair Edwin Hubble sat in until he died about three years ago. Mount Wilson Observatory. So he's a scientist with impeccable credentials. Jastrow in 1978 wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. On page one, he says, I'm an agnostic on religious matters. In other words, he says, I don't know whether God exists or not. But then on page 14, he goes, after he's going through some of the surge evidence, here's what he says. The astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. Then Jastrow went on in an interview to say this. And oh, by the way, that's an actual picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. That's Saturn in infrared. That's not a painting. Here's what Jastrow said in an interview. Astronomers now found they painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which it can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all that has, all this has happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Now, wait, 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 wait. Why would an agnostic astronomer say it's scientifically proven that supernatural forces are at work. Why couldn't nature have created the universe? Because there was no nature. Nature itself was created. There was no space, no matter, no time. Nothing spatial, temporal, or physical. And then space, matter, and time had a beginning. So it would seem that the cause must be outside of space, matter, and time. It must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. The universe came into existence out of nothing. What is nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing. Now, why is this not God of the gaps reasoning? Usually, atheists will say, well, you're just plugging God into your gap in knowledge. One day we'll find a natural cause. Why is this not God of the gaps? Because you're not going to find a natural cause for all of nature. That's like saying, I'm going to, I'm one day I'm going to give birth to my own mother. Okay, you're not. It's a category mistake to say you're going to find a natural cause for all natural causes. It's got to be something beyond the natural. What does the word super mean? It means beyond the natural. When we talk about superman, we're talking about somebody beyond a man. When we're talking about supernatural, we're talking about something beyond the natural. That's what supernatural means. It wasn't just Jastro who said this kind of stuff. All these folks here are Nobel Prize winners in physics. They helped discover the R and the G in search. 
This guy, Arno Penzias, put it this way. He said, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. His colleague, Robert Wilson, who was a believer in the steady state theory that the universe was static and eternal until he helped discover the radiation afterglow, put it this way. He said, certainly there was something that set it all off. I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match Genesis. George Smoot, the man who said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God, put it this way. He said, there is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. Now, if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. The evidence leaves us with one of the following two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Now, here's my only question. Which view is more reasonable? No one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. Seems to me someone created something out of nothing. No one can't create nothing out of nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. Even Julie Andrews knew that. (laughs) Didn't she? Now, last year at Texas A&M, last year was April, I asked, which one is more reasonable? And an atheist gentleman sitting right over here said, number one's more reasonable. That no one created something out of nothing. And so I said, well, let's look at number two for a second. Number two says someone created something out of nothing. Now, number two is a miracle, right? But at least you have a miracle worker. Somebody's doing a miracle there. Number one is a miracle with no miracle worker. If you're going to say that the entire universe can come into existence out of nothing, that the whole show, the whole effect can come into existence without a cause, then why doesn't everything come into existence without a cause? If we're going to give up on the law of causality, we've got to give up on science. Because that's what science does. It looks for causes. In fact, I said, there is nobody sitting in this room right now who believes that as you sit here, or as you sit here, you're worried That a hippopotamus has just appeared out of nothing in your living room and is currently defecating on the carpet. You don't worry about that. Why? Because you believe that every effect must have a cause. Things don't pop into existence out of nothing by nothing. So I certainly think that number two is more reasonable than number one. In fact, the question to ask an atheist, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? If there is no God, why is there... Something rather than nothing at all. Or if there is no God, why does anything exist? If someone, the atheist says, well, the universe has always existed, therefore it doesn't need a cause. What do you, what do you say? I would say surge. Second law, universe expanding, radiation, afterglow, great galaxy seeds, Einstein. And there's other evidence, too, that the universe had a beginning. So, someone created something out of nothing. Now, you say, how do atheists respond to this evidence? Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look at Stephen Hawking. This book just came out about a month ago. Uh, Has anyone read this book in here? Anyone read Stephen Hawking's new book? Just one of us? Man, it made a big splash in the media. Uh, Usually, well, you know what? How many people bought the book but haven't read it? Because people buy Hawking books and don't read it, like The Brief History of Time. You know, I had no time for that book. It's too brief. Anyway. Here's what Hawking says in the book. He he agrees that the universe had a beginning. In fact, he cites much of the surge evidence we've just been through. And he also agrees our universe appears to be fine-tuned for life, which we'll get to the next argument. But then he runs into some big philosophical problems. Again, 
Science doesn't say anything scientists do, and you can't do science without philosophy. Here is what Hawking says in the book. This book is rooted in the concept of scientific determinism, which implies that there are no miracles or exceptions to the laws of nature. Miracles don't occur, according to Hawking. Scientific determinism. Admit This is like crick. Remember I mentioned before? That one cause just follows another. There's really no you out there. There's no agent causality. It's just natural law, raw natural law. What's the problem with this? First of all, this is a philosophical assertion, not a scientific conclusion. It begs the question in favor of atheism. Why don't miracles occur? Hawking says, because I said so. There's no evidence for this. This is just a philosophical assertion. Notice also... It also means that Hawking's thoughts in this book are determined, so we have no reason to believe that they are true. If we are just one cause after another, or our thoughts are just the result of previous natural causes, and we're not really thinking, it's just scientific determinism, molecules in motion, we're just meat machines, then why believe this book is true? Why believe any book is true? Why believe anything? You can't. You're not really reasoning There's just chemicals going off in your head if Hawking is right. And Hawking doesn't pull any... What I love about Hawking is he tells you exactly what he's trying to say. He even goes on to say free will is just an illusion. Which means what? This book is an illusion too. Basically, Hawking's saying we're in the matrix. We're in the matrix. How could Hawking know we are in the matrix? He'd have to be outside of the matrix to know, wouldn't he? You can only know you're in the matrix when you're outside of the matrix. You can only know that you're having a dream when you wake up, when you get outside the dream. In fact, here's what Hawking says. He says, or he asks the question, do we really have reason to believe that objective reality exists? What do you think his answer is? What do you think his answer is? This is, this is the most renowned physicist in the world. Physicist, what's what a physicist? Like the physical world. He's asking us, do we have really be- reason to believe the physical world is out there? You know what he says? No. He says there's no model independent concept of reality. He says it twice in the book. No model independent concept of reality. Now, if you are, if you know the Roadrunner tactic we went through before, just apply that to this claim. This is self-defeating. Is that concept of reality objective? This is Kant again. He's saying you can't know the real world. And then he makes statements about the real world. Namely, you can't know. Do you see Kant here? This is, this is just Kant again. Also, this assertion makes science impossible. Why does it make science impossible? Because there's no objective reality to investigate. So if we can't, what's the purpose of this book? You can't do science without philosophy. People think philosophy is not worth anything. Philosophy is worth everything because everything is built on philosophy. And Hawking is a very poor philosopher. In fact, in the second paragraph, he says philosophy is dead. And then he goes on to make all these philosophical assertions. I don't know if he sees the irony here. Maybe it's his co-author. He even has scientific problems. On page nine, he says multiple universes arise naturally from physical laws. 
That allows him to get out of the fine-tuning argument. We can talk more during the Q&A about the multiple universes. But then he says on page 180, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Hello, McFly. What? Because there is a law like gravity? Let's analyze this a little bit. First of all, all physical laws, including gravity, had a beginning and thus need a cause. So gravity had a beginning. You need a cause for gravity. By the way, gravity really doesn't cause anything. Gravity makes no decisions. Gravity just describes what happens under certain conditions. Every time I drop this, gravity pulls it to the ground. It doesn't think, if he drops that one more time, I'm not going to pull it to the ground. (laughs) Gravity couldn't be a creator because gravity does the same thing over and over again. It can't be a creator. A creator has to make a choice. Also, uh, there's a lot of talk about a quantum vacuum. But a quantum vacuum is not nothing. It's not non-being. The quantum vacuum needs a cause. So even if you want to go into quantum mechanics, that doesn't rescue Hawking. In fact, his colleague, Roger Penrose, who's an atheist, who wrote with Hawking back in the 70s, wrote a review of this book. And he said, Hawking's whole view, called M-theory, which is a, 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 a highfalutin string theory, says he has no observational support for this theory. None. And this is his colleague, Penrose, saying he's just making this stuff up as he goes. Also, the speculative multiple universes, even if they exist, need a cause. The guy I quoted in the very beginning, Alexander Vilenkin, who said, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. That guy, he wrote a book called Many Worlds in One in 2006. He's a believer in the multi-universe theory. He thinks there are many universes out there, and we just happen to be in the one that looks designed. But you know what even Vilenkin says? Vilenkin says, even if there are multiple universes out there, the whole multiverse needs a cause. So you don't get away from a creator even if there are other universes out there. And there's no evidence there are. What about Christopher Hitchens? I've had the opportunity to debate Christopher a couple of times. This is a picture from our second debate. By the way, you can see both debates for free on our website, crossexamined.org. Uh, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, for those of you who are religiously minded in here, you may want to pray for Christopher because... He's undergoing some serious cancer treatment right now. He has esophageal cancer. It does not look good. His father died of it. He's only 62. In any event, he has less than nine pages on metaphysics in his book. What's metaphysics? Study of things beyond the physical, like God. All the arguments for God he deals with in less than nine pages. He hardly deals with them at all. But in this nine pages, he says, The Big Bang is the accepted theory of the origins of the universe. He agrees with all the surge evidence. And then he goes on to say that the theory works without God, but he never says how. So in the second debate, I had the opportunity to ask him a question. I said, Christopher, all the evidence shows that the universe exploded into being out of nothing, particularly all the evidence in physics. What's your atheistic explanation for that? And after a long joke that went nowhere, he said, the philosopher Laplace had no need for God in his model of the universe. Laplace was a philosopher who lived a couple hundred years ago. So I said, Christopher, what does, what does Laplace have to do with this today? The evidence today shows that space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing. What's your atheistic explanation for that? You know what he said? He said, I'm not a physicist. Oh, I guess you can ignore all the evidence for, from physics then, huh? 
If the moderator had given us the opportunity to go back and forth, I, said, I would have said, Christopher, that, that, that doesn't mean you can ignore all the evidence from physics. I mean, suppose you're a, you're a crime scene investigator and you, you find a body with bullet holes in it and you go up to the body and there's a note taped on it in French. Can you pick up that note and say, I don't speak French, so I'm going to throw this note away. Can you do that? Can you ignore the evidence because you don't speak French? No, find somebody who speaks French. Similarly, if you don't know the evidence from physics, find somebody who does. You just can't ignore the evidence from physics. See, atheists think they don't have to have an explanation for the beginning of the universe. If you want to have a worldview that has adequate explanatory scope and power, you have to have some cause for the universe. And then Hitchens goes on to say, well, you think God made it, who made God? Let's deal with that very briefly here. Who made God? Well, there has to be an uncaused first cause. There has to be something that's uncreated that caused everything else. We've got two possibilities. Either the universe is the uncaused first cause or something outside the universe is the uncaused first cause. We've just given evidence that the universe is not the uncaused first cause. So it must be something outside the universe that is. And that cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Why? Because space, matter, and time were created. Now, if you're timeless, do you need a cause? No, you didn't have a beginning. Only things that have a beginning have a cause. The first cause doesn't have a cause. God doesn't need a cause because he's the first cause. Even as Sherlock Holmes said, he said, when you have two possibilities and one possibility you rule out, the other possibility is the right answer, no matter how unfathomable it seems. The universe had a beginning, so the cause of the universe must be uncaused. You can look at it one other way, too. Suppose I were to ask you who made this book or who wrote this book. Your answer would be, not a trick question, Stephen Hawking. Suppose I look back at you and I said, that is not good enough. Who made Stephen Hawking? You might go, well, that's an interesting question, but it's irrelevant to my question. I can know who made this book without knowing who made the author of the book, can I? I can know that Stephen Hawking wrote this book even if I have no idea where Stephen Hawking came from. Similarly, you can know that a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being created the universe without knowing where that spaceless, timeless, immaterial being came from. It's a whole nother question. It doesn't get you out of the conclusion that the universe... Had a beginning. Now you say, well, let's take a look at another scientific source. Here's one. This is National Geographic's explanation for how we got here. Uh, Well, it was there. There it is. Well, what happened here? Stand by for vectors, Victor. Oh. (laughs) I should use Microsoft. No, I'd, I'd have a virus and couldn't show you anything. There you go. Self-generating universes. Multiple universes grow like branches from a tree trunk in a model that allows the universe to create itself. Say what? Can you create yourself? No, you have to exist prior to creating anything. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to let some graphic artist draw some kind of uh, demented French horn (laughs) to get me to believe that's how we got here. One scientist in the article was very honest. He said, it's sort of like we're, we're, we're brushing our ignorance under the rug of the very early universe. Exactly. Now, this was all summed up beautifully by Robert Jastrow, the agnostic astronomer, as I mentioned before. He goes through all the surge evidence 
And then once he gets done with all the surge evidence, remember, he's the agnostic. He doesn't know whether God exists or not. He ends the book with this classic line. It's worth the price of the book. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. No doubt reading Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Now, can anyone give me any good reason why we ought not be teaching this surge evidence in our public school system? I didn't say anything about the Bible says this. I'm simply saying it's congruent with the Bible. You don't need the Bible to know the universe exploded into being out of nothing. Now, that's the cosmological argument. The next two will go a little bit quicker. Let's deal with the teleological argument. And this is the argument from design. This is the argument that really goes back to William Paley's watch argument. If you found this diamond-studded Rolex in the woods, would you think it was made by natural law? You're just skipping along. You find the the Rolex. You go, I'm glad I don't need to turn this in. This was made by the wind and the rain. (laughs) No. Well, if a watch requires a watchmaker, then so do the universe and life. Because the universe and life are a lot more designed than a watch. We've been talking about the universe coming into existence out of nothing, so let's pick up the the discussion with the universe. And scientists call this principle that the universe is precisely fine-tuned for life, the anthropic principle. Anthropos comes from the Greek word, which means mankind. It says the universe is precisely tweaked, precisely fine-tuned for life to exist here on Earth. We'll go back to Stephen Hawking, who put it this way. There was extreme precision at the beginning. He said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. Change the expansion rate, that infinitesimal amount, we're not here. Change those those, uh, temperature variations in the radiation afterglow, an infinitesimal amount, we're not here. Our solar system looks precisely fine-tuned, too. Where are we in the solar system? There we are, third rock from the sun. If we were just a little bit closer to or a little bit further away, we wouldn't be here. A little bit closer to, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It is not too hot. It is not too cold. It is just right. The axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. You change that slightly, we don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours. You change that slightly, we don't exist. The size and distance of the moon from us. You change that slightly, we don't exist. If Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. Why not? Because Jupiter acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational force is so strong, it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it rather than us. If you take a close-up look at Jupiter, you know what those purple marks are on Jupiter? Over here, these purple marks. They are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. (laughs) If Jupiter was not there, we would not be here. Saturn the same way. In fact, you want to get an idea of how big Jupiter is. Look, here's Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Earth, Neptune, or uh, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. Do you know Pluto recently has been demoted as a planet? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I think it's size discrimination. All right, keep an eye on Jupiter for a second. Check this out. Woo, there's Jupiter right there, the sun, of course. There's Earth. You can hardly see Pluto. Hey, can we bring some of these lights down here a little bit? There you go. You see that a little bit better. 
Uh, all right, keep an eye on the sun here. Take a look at this. Whew. There's the sun right here. That's Arcturus. That's another star in our galaxy. Here's the sun. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto, forget about it. <laughs> okay, keep an eye on Arcturus. Do you have Arcturus? Here we go. Where's Arcturus? Right here. Next to Regal. This is Antares, another star in our galaxy. The sun is one pixel on this scale. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about them. The heavens are awesome. If you could take our galaxy and shrink it down to the size of the continental United States, how big would our solar system be? Our solar system would be the size of a quarter on the floor of the Nevada desert. And we'd be an infinitesimal speck of dust on that quarter. Another anthropic principle. The average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles. All that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Now, how far is 30 trillion miles? Far. <laughs> It'll take you at least two tanks of gas and a Toyota Prius <laughs> to go 30 trillion miles. That is if the gas pedal doesn't stick. Now, a number of years ago, I was out in the Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona at night. It was a beautiful, clear night, so clear. We could see so many stars up there that the guide said, if we look up at 9.03, we're going to see the space shuttle in orbit. I said, oh, come on. We're not going to see the space shuttle in orbit. The thing is only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. We're not going to see it. At 9.03, the guide goes, look! Oh, me of little faith, I look up, there it is. There's an object streaking across the sky, 70 degrees above the horizon, coming out of the west, relative to us, about like this. I mean, it is really moving. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. But I mean, it was cruising across the sky. Now, when the space shuttle is in orbit, it's traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? <laughs> Take the space shuttle. You know, five miles a second. Think about that. Now, I did a little calculation to try and figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star in our galaxy, an average distance away, going five miles a second. How long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles? It would take us 201,450 years to go from one star in our galaxy to another star an average distance away going five miles a second. And how many stars are out there? The number of stars that are out there are about equivalent to the number of sand grains on all the beaches on all the earth. And to go from one sand grain to another sand grain going five miles a second, it'll take you over 200,000 years? Yeah. And we're going to explore space. No, we're not. Okay. We're not going anywhere in space. In fact, did you hear about that new planet they just discovered? They said, oh, it's, it's kind of like Earth. You know how long it would take us to get there? Half a million years. Hey, who's going to go? Hey, I'll go. Home for dinner, honey. Take a look at this. See this picture from the ground? 
See this square right here? That's this square from the Hubble Space Telescope. Those are stars, heavenly bodies, galaxies. Now that you got an idea how big the universe is, check out this anthropic principle. If the gravitational force were altered by more than one part in 10 to the 40, we wouldn't be here. Now, what's one part in 10 to the 40? Here's an illustration. Take a tape measure and stretch it across that entire known universe we just mentioned. And set gravity at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. I know gravity isn't measured in inches. This is just an illustration to give you an idea of how precise 1 in 10 to the 40 is. You set gravity at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. If you were to move the strength of gravity 1 inch in either direction, we wouldn't be here. That is extreme fine-tuning. I don't have enough faith to believe that that happened by chance, whatever that means. There's a mind behind this universe setting dials about constants and environmental factors precisely right. February 1st, 2003, President of the United States goes into the Oval Office, actually the East Room in the White House. Saturday morning, 9 a.m., they turn the TV camera on. Every major network carries his address. Saturday morning, 9 a.m., why? The president looks into the camera and says, My fellow Americans, this morning our nation has experienced a great tragedy. The space shuttle Columbia, upon re-entry into the atmosphere, burned up in the skies over Texas. There are no survivors. The president then went on to quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Why Isaiah chapter 40? Because in Isaiah chapter 40, according to Isaiah, God is speaking. In verse 25, God says, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. In other words, you want to know what I'm like? Here's what God says. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these stars and named them one by one? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The president looked back in the camera and said, The same God that created and named all those stars is the same God that created and knows the names of the seven astronauts who perished today. While they did not return safely home to us, we can all now pray that they've all returned safely home. God created all those stars and named them one by one. Who is this God? Most Christians have the wrong idea of who God is. We think God is like a big angel. God is not a big angel. If he's infinite in any attribute, he's infinite in all attributes. If he's an ounce of love, he's infinite love. An ounce of justice, infinite justice. An ounce of power, he's infinite power. He is the standard by which everything else is measured. You want to know who God is? Remove all limits from your mind. That's God. Why is there a second commandment? At least one reason why is there a second commandment. Thou shalt make no graven image. Because any image you make of an infinite being necessarily limits his majesty. You can't draw a picture of infinity. You can't make a picture of an infinite being. Anything that you do draw limits him. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, God's love that to, to those that fear him exceeds the height of the heavens above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? From our perspective, infinite. That's the point. 
It's not just the heavens that cry out for design. So does life. Do you see this? This is a one-celled amoeba that the Darwinists say we all evolve from. You heard of the theory of macroevolution from the goo to you via the zoo? This is the goo. Or from the infantile to the reptile to the crocodile to the Gentile? This is the infantile. Well, back in Darwin's day, 1859, they didn't know that this was any big deal, that maybe non-living chemicals could come together without intelligence and create the first one-celled life, and from that point, natural selection could take over, and here we all are, voila. Today we know a cell is far more complex, far more designed than anything we've ever created ourselves, including this laptop computer I'm showing you this presentation on. The cell is a miniature factory with scores of motors and computer code in it. In fact, there's so much computer code in it, in order to illustrate this to you, let me take you to your breakfast table. How many people in here like alphabet cereal? Let's let's suppose you want a bowl of alphabet cereal, you're a teenager, and you come downstairs one morning to have a bowl of alphabet cereal, and when you get downstairs, you see that the letters are knocked over on the kitchen table, and right in the middle of the table, the letters spell, take out the garbage, mom. What are you going to assume? The cat knocked the box over? Earthquake shook the house? No, you're going to say that's intelligent design from an intelligent being, mom. Or you're walking along the beach and you see in the sand, John loves Mary. What are you going to assume? The cat uh, or the, uh, you're going to assume that the uh, crabs came out of the water and made that? Or the waves came up on the beach and did that? No, you're going to say there had to be an intelligent being there to do that. How do you know this? Because messages only come from minds. In fact, this is the whole premise of the movie Contact. Did you see the movie Contact with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey? A movie about a real program we had in this country, federally funded, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. How will they know ET is out there? If we get one sentence from outer space, it'll show intelligence is out there. One sentence? How do we know that? Because messages only come from minds. They don't come from natural forces. If messages only come from minds, then how does one explain this message? DNA, the four-letter genetic alphabet that all of us have. You have DNA, I have DNA, a banana has DNA. This is basically software code. This is digital code. It's information. Where does it come from? This is like take out the garbage mom. It's just a lot more complicated. And how much information is in a one-celled amoeba? And by the way, how big is an amoeba? You could line up several hundred amoebas in an inch. And in each one of them, the amount of DNA information in there is equivalent to at least a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia. A thousand volumes of an encyclopedia. Now, to say that that resulted by natural forces is like saying that the Library of Congress resulted from an explosion in a printing shop. See, I don't have enough faith to believe that. You have to have more faith to believe that there's not intelligence out there than just to say the first life requires an intelligent cause. Information is immaterial. Where does it come from? Oh, it's expressed in material. But the order in which those letters exist is immaterial. It's not put together by natural law. Oh, by the way, you might be going, well, who told you this? Some Christian? You know, you know who told me this? Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, even he admits there's that much information in there. Why is this a not of the God of the gaps argument? People say, oh, you just plugging God in. We're going to find a natural cause for life. 
This is not a God of the gaps argument because it's not just that we lack a natural explanation for take out the garbage mom or John loves Mary or a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia and a microscopic amoeba. It's that such messages are positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being. When you see take out the garbage mob on your kitchen table, you don't just go, I don't have a natural cause. You go, that's just like mom. I wish we had more time to talk about biology, but we got to get to the moral law and then take your questions. Let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about you in the womb. I don't know if you can see that, but there's a baby there. Maybe you can bring those lights down a little bit. There's a baby in the womb right there. You can see the hand right there. That's in the womb at 11 weeks. In fact, let's go back to the very beginning of you. When your mother and your father got together, have you guys had this talk before? (laughs) I see some young people in here. I'll try and be discreet. When your mother and your father got together, your father sent the entire population of the United States 300 million soldiers (laughs) toward your mother's egg. And then there was a race. And you won. That's right. Don't let anyone ever tell you you're not special. You beat out 300 million others. You have blown away anything Michael Phelps has done. Now, seeing some of you limp in here earlier makes it hard for me to believe you were the fastest soldier in the gene pool. But you were. Now, your soldier, despite being 20 to 30 times smaller than a grain of salt, contained half of the genetic information that makes you you. And your mother's egg, which was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence in an average book, contained the other half of the genetic information that makes you you. And when that soldier and that egg came together, a new 100% genetic human being was created. You have not gotten any more genetic information from that point till right now. In fact, the only thing that's separating you from adulthood was time, air, water, and food. Those are the same four things that separate a two-year-old from adulthood. Does this have implications on the abortion issue? Yeah, I think it does. We can't kill the two-year-old. Why can't we kill the genetically equal unborn child in the womb? By the way, what I just said there has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with the often misused separation of church and state. And it is not above anybody's pay grade to know. It is just a scientific fact. Now, that that event right there led to a construction project of astonishing complexity. Cells began multiplying at a rate of 4,000 cells per second. Brain cells began multiplying at a rate of 100,000 cells per second. Some cells became brain cells. Other cells became heart cells. Other cells became lung cells. How did they know how to do this? Nobody knows. Some cells went so far across you to become what they needed to become that it would be equivalent to you today walking across the United States alone. And that astonishing construction project continues to this day. You just made 4 million new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million. You just made another 4 million. Knock it off. How do you know how to do this? 
I don't have enough faith to believe there's not intelligence behind life. There is intelligence at the very essence of life. More in the book on that, but we got to move on to the moral argument and then get to your questions. We talked about the cosmological and teleological arguments for the existence of God. Now let's talk about the moral argument. There is nothing wrong with murder. There is nothing wrong with rape. There is nothing wrong with child abuse. There is nothing wrong with slavery. There is nothing wrong with anything unless God exists. In fact, if there is no God, then you can't say that this was really wrong. Oh, you could say you didn't like it. You could say it made you sad. But you can't say it was objectively morally wrong. Why not? Because if there is no God, that's just your opinion against bin Laden's opinion. In fact, if there is no God, then you can't say that this, brace yourself, you can't say that this was really wrong, the Holocaust. One young lady in a college once said, that's offensive. I said, I agree with you, but it's true. This really happened. And if there is no God, you have no moral grounds to say that's objectively wrong. That's just your opinion against Hitler's opinion. We all intuitively understand this is really wrong. There's a standard out there, a moral standard. What is the argument for this God from the moral argument? Every law has a lawgiver. There is an objective moral law. Therefore, there is an objective moral lawgiver. That's it right there. In other words, every prescription has a prescriber. Suppose you go to the pharmacist with a prescription, you hand it to him, he looks at it, he goes, hey, uh, who prescribed this? And you go, "Uh, nobody. Are you going to get the medicine? No, every prescription has a prescriber. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an objective moral law, therefore there's an objective moral lawgiver. In fact, this is how our country began. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. The creator endows us with rights. Governments don't give you your rights. Governments don't take away your rights. If you read the rest of the declaration, it says governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. In fact, how do you know who's right and who's wrong? Mother Teresa or Hitler? Well, uh, let's look at it this way. How do you know which map of Scotland is better? Is it map A or map B? What would be the only way to know for sure? What would you need to see? You'd need to see a real unchanging place called Scotland, right? And when you did, you could see map A, while it's not perfect, it's a better representation of the real Scotland than is map B. If Scotland doesn't exist, those two maps are meaningless, aren't they? But since Scotland does exist, we could see map A is better because it measures up to the real thing better than does the other map. That's exactly what we do when we compare Mother Teresa and Hitler. Mother Teresa wasn't the standard. Hitler wasn't the standard. There's a standard beyond both of them by which we measure both of them. And we say Mother Teresa measured up to the real standard better than did Hitler. What is the standard? God's unchanging moral nature. God is the standard. His very nature is the standard of morality. And what measures up to him is moral and what doesn't isn't. In fact, if there is no objective morality, then the Nazis were not wrong. At Michigan State last year, during the Q&A, uh, I was having an inter, uh, interaction with a couple atheists who were sitting right over here, and uh, 
we were talking about the source for morality, and he was using moral language. So I said, hey, what's your uh, standard for morality? And he said, whatever society decides to do is morally right. And I said, well, are you telling me that if, the, if you're in a Nazi society and Nazis decide it's okay to kill Jews, and then that's morally right? And he stopped, and he got red for a minute, and his upper lip quivered a little bit, and he went, yes. And his friend sitting right next to him looked at him and said, No! But he was just trying to be consistent with his worldview. That's not a standard. That changes all the time. There'd be no way we could judge the Nazis if there wasn't a standard beyond the Nazi government called international law or the moral law or, as Jefferson put it, nature's law. If there is no objective morality, love is no better than rape. Freedom is no better than slavery. Religious crusades are not wrong. I hear this all the time. Christopher Hitchens says this. Oh, you evil Christians. Those crusades, they were evil. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean they're evil? What do you, what do you mean by evil? Where does that come from? By the way, does anyone know when the first crusade was ordered? Anyone? No one? Take a guess. 1095. People think, oh, Christianity spread by use of the sword. Christianity was in existence for over a thousand years before the Crusades ever began. And what were the Crusades? They were mostly a military response to Muslim aggression, a 400-year delayed military response. Now, there were a lot of atrocities in the Crusades. Many of them were ill-planned. They were ill-fated. They should have never occurred. But to say that that's how Christianity spread is just not to know history. Islam spread largely by the sword right away. But Christianity was trying to take back land the Muslims had taken from them. But if you're an atheist, you, have, you can't have any objection to religious crusades because you have no standard. Tolerance is no better than intolerance. And finally, you can't complain about the problem of evil. One of the greatest arguments against God, at least on the surface, is if God, why evil? I mean, if there is a good God, why all this evil out there? C.S. Lewis started to think about that one day. He was an atheist, and suddenly he realized there was a problem. Here's what Lewis finally wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Bottom line, evil presupposes good, and good presupposes a standard beyond yourself. There's no way to know evil unless you know good, and there's no way to have good unless there's a standard outside of humanity, which is the whole point. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God. It's a backhanded way of showing there's a God. The shadows prove the sunshine. You can have sunshine without shadows, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. So evil doesn't disprove God. Let me be very clear as to what we are saying and what we are not saying. We are not saying that atheists can't be moral. They can. We are not saying atheists don't know morality. They do. I had to say this several times to Christopher Hitchens in both of our debates. Christopher, I'm not saying you're a bad guy. I'm not saying that you don't know morality. In fact, do you need to know the Bible to know right from wrong? No, even Christianity doesn't teach that. Christianity teaches exactly the opposite in Romans chapter 2. The Gentiles who do not have the law have the law written on their hearts. Our country was founded on this. You don't need the Bible to know basic right and wrong. 
In fact, if you did, God was unjust for judging the entire generation of Noah. They didn't have a Bible. Now, the Bible gives you more information, but the point here is, is you know right from wrong because it's written on your heart. There's a standard outside of us. That's what I kept saying to Christopher. You know it. And you can be moral. That's not my case. My point is that you cannot justify morality. You can theorize about how we know murder is wrong, but atheism provides no immaterial objective standard that establishes why murder is wrong. This is a critical distinction. Indulge me for 30 seconds. This is a critical distinction. This is the difference between what philosophers call epistemology and ontology. Epistemology is how you know something. Ontology is that something exists. I'll give you an illustration from mathematics instead of morality. I learned the times tables from my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Fisher. He taught them to me. That's how I came to know the times tables, epistemology. But that four times four equals 16 existed independently of me or Mr. Fisher. That's ontology. The same thing is applied to morality. Yes, we may know morality from our parents. We may know it from society. If evolution is true, we may know it from natural selection. But that's not the point. The point is, why is there a a moral standard? What is the authority behind it? I kept asking Christopher Hitchens. You're a materialist, Christopher. You believe that all that exists is just what's on the periodic table. How do you get a moral law from chemicals? What does love weigh? What's the chemical composition of hate? These are questions that can't be answered because those things are immaterial. They're not made of chemicals. I mean, did Hitler just have bad molecules? You can't have a moral law if all that exists are materials. Yet you have all these objections about how evil religious people are. Where do you get that from? So an immaterial objective standard of justice requires a theistic God. I kept saying to him, Christopher, when you do something wrong, who are you offending? The carbon atom? The benzene molecule? So when he writes the book, God is not great how religion poisons everything. First of all, what does the word poison mean? Poison is a, is a fun way of saying religion's evil. Well, how does he know something's evil unless he knows something is good? And how do you know good unless there's a standard beyond yourself? In effect, what Christopher's doing is he's borrowing from God in order to argue against him. He's borrowing a moral law in order to argue against God. In effect, he has to sit in God's lap to slap his face. And then he says, religion poisons everything. Actually, religion does not poison everything. Everything poisons religion. I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. In fact, I said so. In the second debate, I said, look, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to this book. But if I could, I wouldn't need a savior. Everybody's a hypocrite. That's why we need a savior. That's why Christ came. If we weren't hypocrites, we wouldn't need him. And whenever somebody says to me, I can't go to church because all those hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. See, that's what the church is. It's a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. We're all hypocrites. In fact, if you're not a hypocrite, your standards are too low. You ought to raise them up a bit. Now, if you look at Christopher's, how many have read God is not great? Has anyone read God is not great? How religion poisons everything? Man. Well, anyway, he's really mad at God, you can tell in there. In fact, in the last chapter, he says, I will not live under this divine tyranny. He thinks God is, God's a cosmic dictator. 
and he won't live under them. He's mad. So at the end of the debate, I said, you can sum up Christopher Hitchens' book in one sentence. Here it is. There is no God, and I hate him. (laughs) He's just mad. Now, let's sum this up and go to questions. From these three arguments, we can draw some conclusions about the first cause. From the cosmological argument, we can see that the first cause is immaterial, timeless, and spaceless because he created material time and space. We can also see he's extremely powerful because he created out of nothing. From the teleological argument, we can see he's extremely intelligent. Obviously, with the extreme precision with which this universe was put together, this universe was not put together by committee. It was put together by one mind. Also, he has purpose. From the moral argument, we can see he's absolutely morally perfect, and we can also see he's personal. How do we know he's personal from the moral argument? Because when you, you don't have a moral obligation to an impersonal force. When you go try and dunk a basketball, you're not sinning against the law of, of uh, gravity. Okay, You can only sin against persons. We also know he's personal, by the way, from the cosmological argument. I hinted at this before. When Hawking says we were caused by gravity, well, gravity doesn't make any choices. In order to go from a state of non-existence to a state of existence, somebody had to make a choice. Gravity doesn't decide anything. It just does the same thing over and over again. And as I mentioned before, gravity had to be created anyway. You need a, you need a cause. You need an agent to go from a state of non-existence to a state of existence. Only persons make choices. Impersonal laws don't make choices. So the first cause had to be personal. Now notice... We have an immaterial, timeless, spaceless, extremely powerful, extremely intelligent, purposeful, morally perfect, personal creator, and we haven't opened the Bible yet. Yet this is the God of biblical Christianity identified without reference to the Bible. Now, does this mean Christianity is true? No, not yet. In fact, let's go back to where we've, we've been. If our reasoning is good to this point, our evidence is good to this point, we've given arguments for theism. What does that say about pantheism and atheism? Well, they can't be true, right? Law of non-contradiction. If theism is true, then atheism is false. What does that say about world religions? It says that one of these world religions could be true, but none of these could be true. Why? Because none of these are theistic. Now, I am not saying that everything taught by the religions on the right is false. That's not my point. My point is, is when it comes to the existence and nature of God, the religions on the right appear to have it wrong. Now, that's a pretty big deal, right? I'm not saying there's no truth in those religions, but when it comes to the existence and nature of God, they appear to have it wrong. So which one of these world religions is right? Maybe none of them are right. Maybe they just have theism right, but nothing else. That's possible. But if there is a God and he wanted to get our attention and tell us which one was right, what could he do? He could do something only he could do, and that is he could do a miracle. And that's what we're going to pick up tomorrow night. But let's end where we began. Remember we started with the Astonishing Hypothesis by Francis Crick? Here's what he said. The Astonishing Hypothesis is that you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Scientific determinism, same thing that Hawking is saying. But to see the problem with this, imagine if Crick had written this in his own book. 
Imagine if he had said this. The astonishing hypothesis is that my scientific conclusions that I write in this book are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Would anybody buy the book or believe anything he said? Again, everyone can see that this is self-defeating, isn't it? It violates the law of non-contradiction, the roadrunner tactic. So what is the purpose of your life? Is it a glorified monopoly game? No, it's not a glorified monopoly game. And in fact, if you come back tomorrow night, we are going to talk about it. So if you would, tomorrow night we'll do part two. Don't forget the book is out there. The DVDs are out there. Crossexamine.org is our website. We have a blog Uh, We have uh, articles up there. We have videos up there. If you sign up for our email, we'll send you one email a month that'll tell you what we're doing. We won't sell your email address to anyone else. We're on radio, as you know, and TV as well. So with that said, it's time for questions. And do we have a mic back there, BJ, a handheld? We got somebody with a handheld who'll come to you because we want to get it on so everyone can hear it. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. And since no one likes to ask the first question, we'll move right on to the second question. Right? Well, go right back there, that right closest right there, and then we'll come down here. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. What do you say to those who say that uh, morality is based on social pragmatism, that through trial and error you learn what is right and wrong based on its overall effect on society? I say that all that presupposes what is good. Right? When they say pragmatism, do whatever works, Or the question is, what does work mean? You're smuggling in a moral law as to what is good. Uh, And that basically goes back to the the, the problem we said before. What worked for Hitler? You know, Hitler was trying to create, quote-unquote, a good society. He wanted to get rid of all the undesirables and create the Ubermann, the super race. And in order to do so, he had to do immoral things. So there's a lot of things that work that aren't right, like lying works, Right? So does that mean we ought to lie? Rape works if you want to have kids. Does that mean you ought to rape? And it implies that there is a good there that you're going for. Well, that's the very question. What is, how, where do you get the good from? The same thing is true with utilitarianism. Do the most good for the most people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean by good? Where are you getting good from? Whose standard of good? Mother Teresa's or Hitler's? So once again, you're back to just human, human opinion if you go there. That's a good question, though. Thank you. Down here, someone had a question. This gentleman right here. Howdy. So uh, if the Bible is the absolute truth, uh, was the earth really created in six days? And if so, how do we interpret that now? Um, okay, yeah. very good question. How old is the universe? First of all, let's talk about does science show the universe is old? First of all, does light from the stars, does that mean that the universe is billions of years old? Well, if the speed of light hasn't changed, probably yes. But that's an assumption you can't prove. Is it a good assumption to say the speed of light hasn't changed? Probably. But it's still an assumption. We don't know for sure. The same thing is true with radioactive dating. The decay rate is assumed to be unchanged. In uranium dating, beginning amount of lead is assumed to be zero. That's an assumption you don't know. Also, the salt in the ocean method, the deposition rate is assumed to be unchanged. The beginning amount of salt and minerals is assumed to be zero. 
Again, these are assumptions you can't prove. You're doing what's known as a forensic science to try and go back and look at an event that nobody observed. So you're trying to piece together clues. You have to make assumptions that you can't prove. Most scientists today will say that uh, if these assumptions are true in the sense the speed of light hasn't changed, then the best evidence shows that the universe is billions of years old. But again, there are assumptions you can't prove. How about the Bible? Does the Bible teach a young universe? It might. But on the other hand, it might not. First of all, the word for day, yom or yom, in Genesis 1 could mean longer periods of time. For example, in Genesis 2, 4, the same word is used in the day the Lord created to cover the whole creation period, which doesn't mean 24 hours. Actually, the word yom really means 12 hours because there's another word for night, but short period of time in any way. The same thing is true in Hosea where it's used with numbers. It doesn't mean 24 hours. And uh, the third day seems to require longer than 24 hours. The growth of vegetation, including fruit-bearing plants. Also, what's interesting is the sixth day seems to require longer than 24 hours. Uh, Adam is created. Then he appears to be lonely. Eve is created. And then Adam has to name all the animals. And that seems to require longer than, even well, really 12 hours to name all these animals. In fact, Brad Stein, who's a Christian comedian, kind of has a bit on this. He said, uh, when Adam saw the first animal, when he first started to uh, name the animals, he was real creative. He'd see an animal come by and he'd go, hippopotamus. He'd see another one come by, he'd go, rhinoceros, by the end of the day. Oh, man. Cow. (laughs) Just seems to require too long. Finally, and and this is interesting, the seventh day is longer because it hasn't ended yet. God is still at rest since creation. So the seventh day, according to Hebrews 4, we're still in. God is at rest. So if the seventh day is longer, maybe the other days are longer. These could be considered periods. Might it teach a young earth? It might, but it might also teach periods. We're not absolutely sure. By the way, all truth is God's truth. God has written two books. Yes, he's written the Bible, if indeed the Bible's true. Haven't proven that yet, but let's assume it is. And he's also written the book of nature. And both go together. In fact, you couldn't understand the Bible without the book of nature. What's included in the book of nature? Logic. You can't understand the newspaper, much less the Bible, unless you have logic and language. So the summary for this whole thing, how old is the universe? There is no conflict between science and the Bible. There's only conflict between some interpretations of the scientific and biblical data. The universe may be older, it may be young. Science and the Bible are not definitive. The only scientific and biblical data that is definitive is that which points to a beginning, a creation. In other words, that creation occurred is more certain biblically and scientifically than when it occurred. Creation out of nothing has strong biblical and scientific support. Okay, so when people ask me how old do you think the universe is, I say on Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think it's young. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I think it's old. And on Sunday, I take the day off. Okay, I don't know how old it is. And neither does anybody else. Because you're making assumptions that you can't prove. But for those of you who feel strongly about it, that's fine. I will urge you one thing. Don't make it a test for orthodoxy for other people. Don't say, if you don't think the earth's young, then you're a heretic. You can't be a Christian. Do you think when you get to heaven, if Christianity's true, God's going to ask you, hey, how old did you think the universe was? <laughs> no, he's going to say, what did you do with Jesus? So don't buy into this idea that if, it's, if you don't think it's young, you're giving up the Bible or not. That begs the question, what does the Bible say there?
Good question. Anyone else? Who's got the mic? You've got the mic here, sir, so find somebody with a hand up. There's a, a lady right there with a hand up. In your list of religions that were not theistic, mm-hmm. you listed Mormonism, and I have a lot of I've been told many times by Mormons that they are Christians, okay. and I don't know that much about Mormonism, so can you explain what okay, it is? Okay, yes, great question. Not? Yeah, well, Mormonism officially says, as man is, God once was. In other words, God was once a man, and that you, if you're a Mormon, you're a man now, but ultimately you're going to get your own planet and rule over that planet. In other words, Mormonism is polytheistic. That's the one world religion that doesn't fit in those three we had earlier, Okay. Now, I hasten to add, that does not mean every Mormon believes this, okay? Just like every Christian doesn't believe necessarily what the Bible says, okay? But official Mormon doctrine says, as man is, God once was. So they'll say, yeah, we're we're part of a Christian denomination, but if you're saying there are many gods, that's not Christianity. Yes, sir. Uh, Was there someone over here? Raise your hand high. Or put it up real fast and then put it down before he sees you. <laughs> just, just to fake him out. Yes, sir. I have to object to your statement saying of how the earth was possibly not created in seven days because it says in Exodus 20:11, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day where there, the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. This is where we get our base, our work week on. So wouldn't it be kind of weird if we're still resting? During that period of time, which is why I believe that he would have created in seven days because he reaffirms it when Moses is talking to the people. Well, it could be. You could be right. I think, though, what he's talking there is a unit for unit comparison. Yeah, he's talking about days, but that doesn't necessarily mean the days are 24 hours because he is still resting right now, which means if he stopped resting after creation, he's been resting for a long time, either thousands or billions of years. So it could teach that, but just as easily, it might not. It's just it seems that you place too much emphasis on the science of it rather than the inerrancy on the Bible, though, because these ideas were not present before the actual science of long ages started. No, that's not true. That's not true. Augustine believed in an old earth long before there was anything about evolution. By the way, evolution does not help. I mean, long periods of time do not does not help evolution. I don't don't mean you know any disrespect or anything. No, no. But it's just like um, it's just. What happened there is not so much with the science of long ages for Augustine, but uh, he was creeping in philosophies outside from the Bible. He was basing all that stuff of long ages not on the Bible itself, but from outside influences. Who is? Who is? Augustine. Remember when you said he also believed in the long earth? He had a... Outside philosophies influences thinking on that, not from well, what well, the Bible well, says. Right, right, that's, that's a good point. The problem is there is no such thing as outside philosophy. There's just philosophy. Okay? You can't understand the Bible without say, the laws of logic. That's, that's not outside philosophy. That's just philosophy. Yeah, it's just different beliefs he had, though, came to influence it. Because that's one of the main problems we seem to have today is that a lot of churches seem to have influences from outside, whether it be from science or anything else, come to say what the Bible says rather than the Bible speaking for All itself. All right, well, let, let, me, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, using... Science to interpret the Bible, that's probably less controversial than this one. The Bible mm-hmm. says there are four corners of the earth. Should we think the earth's flat then? You've got to take it within the context. Of what exactly, that's my point. You've got to take it within the context. And you sometimes will use information from outside the Bible to interpret it. In fact, it's impossible 
to interpret the Bible without, without information outside the Bible. The laws then, of logic. How do you determine that it's a day, it's a period of time, though? That? Because it can mean that in how the do you context. Know it means that? You don't. That's what I'm saying. It could mean short. It could mean long. But is that being arbitrary? No, it's not being arbitrary. It's being honest. I mean, I mean, it could mean short. You're right. But it could also mean long periods of time, too. It de- remember, there's no A, there's no, de- there's, or there, there's no definite article. There's no the day one. It's just day one in the Hebrew. Anyway, good question. Now, again, you guys study, study this topic all you want. I'm interested in the topic, too. But to, to spend a whole bunch of time on it when there are bigger fish to fry, uh, I think, doesn't make any sense. There are, there are many other topics to study that have more to do with uh, the truth of Christianity. Someone way in the back who I can't see. Yes. Hi, Dr. Turek. Um, uh, Chesterton said that it's not that Christianity has been tried and left wanting, but it's found too difficult and left untried. Yes, sir. What do you say to um, the fellow who doesn't have much intellectual objections to the Christian philosophy, but existentially... When he tries it out in the laboratory of life, the promises don't seem to be fulfilled. Excellent, Promise, excellent yeah. question. What are the promises that should be fulfilled? Oh, I'm talking about uh, salvation, not in the positional sense of uh-huh. hell and heaven, but in the sanctification work in each individual life. Oh, oh, why, why, why doesn't God take all our sins away? so to speak, well, the our struggles. The promise is for a new birth. I'm and sorry? The promise is for a new birth. Yes. Regenerate heart and soul. Well, I would say that um, we may think that the promise uh, that is given in the text isn't really what's given in the text because if you read the, the book of Romans, which really is the treatise, the theological treatise of Christianity, Paul is saved, yet if you read chapter 7... He's struggling with sin. And elsewhere in the, in the Bible, he says, I've got a thorn in the flesh. God won't take it away. So everybody struggles with sin. And there are different views within the Christian world about sanctification. I personally don't think that we're ever going to be completely sanctified, perfect, while we're here on earth. I think that ultimately happens in heaven when we're glorified, when we completely lose the sin nature. We continue to struggle with the sin nature, but God gives us grace to deal with it. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we can draw on his strength in order to deal with it. But we're going to struggle, just like Paul did in Romans 7. If you read Romans 7, he says, what I don't want to do, this I do. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is struggling. If he's struggling, I'm going to struggle. You know, I think one of the big issues, this may be a little bit off the topic, um, but I think it, it goes toward the expectations of God. A lot of people think that when they become Christians, their life's going to get all better. I think exactly the opposite is true from a temporal perspective. One of the biggest cancers on so-called Christianity is the name it and claim it gospel. That Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy. If you just become a Christian, you'll be healthy and wealthy if you have enough faith. What a bunch of bunk. I mean, it can be easily disproven by simply looking at the apostles and Jesus. Gee, I guess they didn't have enough faith because they got beaten, tortured, and killed. I mean, please. We don't come to God because he's going to make our lives easy here. We come to God because of who he is, and he will work on us in order to make us better 
here and in eternity. And sometimes you can only gain virtues by going through difficulty. You can't gain patience unless there are obstacles in your way. You can't gain courage unless there's danger in your way. You can't gain compassion unless somebody's suffering. You need evil to a certain extent in order to shape you into the person you need to be. So to want to take the easy way out, the kick back out way out, God's not going to allow that in our lives. You don't grow up when you, have difficult, when you don't have difficulty. In fact, what do we call kids who get everything they want? Spoiled. What's spoiled? The character is spoiled. Imagine, just think about this. What if you got everything you prayed for? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd be even more of a moral monster than I already am. It would be all about me. Everything I prayed for, I get. No way. God has to say no. God has to put difficulty in our lives if we're going to grow to be more like Christ and ultimately, therefore, enjoy him forever. We need that. Good question. Who else? Um, so I've got a correction and then I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, you compared the genome to computer code, which uh-huh. I think is pretty accurate because I'm a computer engineer. Um, I'll say that again. It's pretty accurate. What? I'm a computer engineer. Uh I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, The genome is foreignary, though, whereas computer code is binary. So that's pretty much the only difference. Yes. But um, if you and I, me being a computer engineer, if you and I were to look at the same stream of 32 bits, Uh ones and zeros, I would see something like the instruction for adding register 5 to register 6 and putting it in register 7. I mean, just... Because I know the protocols whereby instructions are passed to the computer and everything. Uh-huh. You would see nothing. It would just be a random, a random sequence of ones and zeros. So your characterization of the genome as information, just kind of with that in mind, it, it doesn't seem fairly accurate, especially considering that transcription doesn't care what information it gets. That's how mutations happen. If it, if it was discriminating between good information and bad information, information then um, mutations wouldn't happen. Those errors wouldn't happen. All it knows is what to do when it sees one amino acid. So that was kind of my correction. Okay, well, I don't know how that impacts the argument that it's designed, though. You can have errors in a genetic code and still the code be designed. Just like you can have design errors in your car, the car is still designed, correct? But nature doesn't care about the information that we assign to the genome. The, the process that created it in the first place. What do you mean by nature? The, the machines that are doing the transcription in the cell, driving evolution. They don't care. I don't, know what you mean. I don't know what you mean by care. What do you mean by care? They only know what to do with a single amino acid. So if part of the sequence of amino acids is wrong, it's not going to pick that up. It's going to propagate the error. Well, isn't it true that DNA sometimes corrects itself? I'm, I'm no biologist, so... Okay, well, in any event, there's a code there we both agree. That's when you have a code or when you have software, you've got a software writer, correct? Well, even the genome, the part that's unique to a human is only like 10 megabytes uncompressed, so um, Windows 7 is like on the order of a few gigs, so... But would compare, a 10, would a 10 meg- megabyte file come into existence by natural law? Yeah, you could do it. <laughs> You could do it, or natural laws could do it? Random bits, 
just throw them in there, 10 megabytes worth. Well, have, have, by the way, have you seen, um, have you seen um, uh, Stephen Meyer's book uh, called Signature in the Cell? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Okay, that book goes into the, the search for really where does information come from? Where does this code come from? And it's pretty well defined how, that comes, how the code comes about. By natural forces? Yes. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me because you win a Nobel Prize. It's been done before, I promise you. How has it been done? Who's done it? People who study evolution. Who? Tell me. Biologist. Give me Name an article. One. Give me a citation. <laughs> I have nothing. I don't even have a backpack with me. Okay, all right. Okay, no, it hasn't been done. That's the whole point. Because information's immaterial. Natural exactly. forces deal with material things. We for, assign meaning to information. For example, let me just, let's take Stephen Hawking's book. Hawking even says that. You, you, you won't believe what he says here in the back of the book. Maybe you will believe it because all the crazy things he said. Here's what he says in the back of the book. This is acknowledgments. Hang on a second. I think it's in the back. Maybe in the front. His acknowledgments. Oh, no, it's in the back. Stand by for vectors, Victor. Call for Clarence, Clarence. The universe has a design, and so does a book. But unlike the universe, a book does not appear spontaneously from nothing. The whole universe comes spontaneously from nothing, but a book can't. When you look at this book right here, there's information, right? The information is expressed in ink and paper, but you cannot explain the information by ink and paper. If I asked you who created the information in here, you wouldn't say the laws of ink and paper. You would say the laws of ink and paper help us to read the information and help it apply to this paper. But the laws of ink and paper aren't enough to explain why these letters are in the order they're in and what they communicate. You need a mind for that. That's what I'm saying with code. And if you want more on that, get Stephen, I mean Stephen Hawk, get Stephen Meyer's book, 600 pages called Signature in the Cell. And he goes into all the attempts to find the information, a natural source for information, and it cannot be found. You know, you had a question after that? Okay. Um, uh, when you were talking about the teleological argument mm -hmm. uh, regarding the cosmic part of it, um, oh, what was I going to say? Uh, what reason could you possibly have for thinking that the, uh, the fundamental constants are mutable in any way? I mean, you're talking about changing the gravitational constant. Right. Why, why would you even think to do that? It's not I'm thinking about doing it. It's that uh, cosmologists say that if it were different, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, that may be true, but why would it be different? What reason do you have to think well, it would? Well, because the co the, the, there, there's, there's no necessary reason why the constants are the way they are. There's nothing in physics that requires the gravitational constant to be what it is. There's nothing in physics that requires the cosmological constant to be what it is. There's nothing in physics that requires the proton and neutron ratio to be what they are. That's why even Steven Weinberg, the atheistic... Uh, Nobel Prize winner from University of Texas at Austin wrote a book. I think it's called. What's. Oh, University of Texas at Austin. I thought it was Weinberg you were hissing. I'm going to have to call Weinberg. 
Anyway, he wrote a book. I can't remember the name of it right now, but he basically says there are six numbers in nature, that there's no explanation for these numbers. It's, they're certainly not there by necessity. And some will say, well, yeah, if the numbers were different, there'd be another kind of universe that maybe life could exist in. The answer is no. If those numbers were different, there wouldn't even be chemistry. Anybody else? Coming around. Uh, I understand how the multiplicity of universes is supposed to address this idea of the constants. If you've got an infinite number of universes, there must be one in which everything was just so. Right. And we happen to be in that universe. Can you address, I mean, doesn't that, aren't they trying to get back to a steady state theory of the universe by doing that, saying it's uncaused? Well, first of all, let's just talk about the multiple universe theory very briefly. First of all, there's no evidence for this. It's purely speculative. We have no way of knowing whether there are other universes out there or not. This appears to just to be a desperate attempt to avoid the implication of design. Secondly, uh, multiple universes would, would multiply the need for a creator because each one would need creation to get started. As Valenkin, Bord, and Guth found, even a multiverse needs an absolute beginning. So as I mentioned before, even if there are other universes out there, the whole show needs an absolute beginning, which, re which would require a beginner. And you need creation to get each of these uh, universes started because the beginning of them is all fine-tuned. Otherwise, they collapse back on themselves. Who or what is keeping these universes from colliding, if they're out there, is another question. This, of course, multiplies its causes beyond necessity. Multiple universes versus one, versus one supernatural cause. Atheists love to bring up Occam's razor, which is a philosophical principle which says you don't multiply causes beyond necessity. Yet that's, that's exactly what they do with this multiple universe theory. They come up with multiple universes, which they have no evidence exist, rather than saying one supernatural being could be the cause for all of it. Finally, this is an atheist admission of the evidence for design, and that design is detectable. They're, de they're saying design is detectable by saying, yeah, it's all fine-tuned. Well, if that's the case, then intelligent design is science then, because they can detect it empirically. So this is just a desperate attempt to avoid the obvious. Now, to put this in a more practical interaction, what they're saying is that every universe in the every universe exists so there's some universe right now where i'm not up here but one of you is up here giving an a, a, a talk on atheism and every possibility exists there's a universe somewhere where the where the holocaust happened but the jews consented to it there's a universe somewhere where the cubs have won the world series the past hundred years <laughs> there's a universe somewhere where texas a&m always beats texas right? This just is incredulous when you think about it. it would, what, what they're saying is, I, when someone says the multiple universe theory just is what I believe in, I say, okay, let's say you and I are playing poker, and I get a royal flush. What are the odds of getting a royal flush? Does anyone know? Slim. I get a royal flush. You go, ooh, lucky hand. Next hand, I get a royal flush again. What are you going to say? Cheater. Let's play again. I get a royal flush again. What are you going to say? Cheater, right? What if I look back at you and said, I'm not a cheater. We just happen to be in the universe where I get a royal flush three times in a row. <laughs> What's more probable, that I'm cheating or we happen to be in that universe which we have no evidence for? That I'm cheating. So this is just a desperate attempt, really, in my view. Anyone else?
Back here, down here, down here. Yeah. Yeah, somebody wants to go home and start clapping. All right, that's enough. Uh, Dr. Turek. Yes. I'd just like to say that uh, I've had your book for quite some time. Uh, I thought it was an enjoyable read, uh, well-written. Um, so my question is, um, I guess I should start out by saying, you agree that when we talk about morality and right and wrong, we're basing that on some kind of standard? Well, mor- morality is a standard, yes. Right. So um, you say that atheists or people that don't believe in, in a God or religion have, have nothing to base right and wrong on. Um, I think it comes down to what you define as morality and uh, I could say as an atheist that some action is wrong based on this other standard. So if I say, for example, that the standard isn't God, but rather uh, the state of humanity, well-being, happiness, life, and death, then I can accurately say say with respect to that standard that um, some action is wrong or right. But not not objectively. That's just your opinion. Well, you can make an objective statement about the standard. With respect to the standard, you can make an objective statement. But you have no authority to say that your standard is the standard that all of humanity needs to follow. Right. But I think most of us as reasonable humans agree to a large extent on what that standard is. The question is why? Because that's what morality is all about. It's about us. It's about our well-being. It's, it's wrong to kill somebody because, um, I mean, in essence, you value your own life. And it would be hypocritical of you to kill someone else and still say... Um, I think I deserve the right to live. What's wrong with hypocrisy if there's no God? I'm just saying this is, this is the standard. This is what allows us to function. This is what keeps, allows us to be happy. No one wants to live in a world where it's okay to go out and kill somebody because you feel like it. Stalin did. Right. We don't agree with Stalin because we have different values. We value human life. All of us here value human life. Stalin, by his actions, tells us he didn't value human life. Yeah, but that's Stalin's opinion. You have your opinion. I'm saying is there an authority beyond you and Stalin? Well, I mean, you've heard of the Euthyphro Dilemma, right? Yeah, the Euthyphro Dilemma, it's called. Yeah, Euthyphro, sorry. Okay. Um, is Go- it good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? Neither. I don't think, I mean... Neither, it- neither. Let me, let me deal with that, because that's a good question. The question is, does God, uh, when God does something, does he do it arbitrarily? He just makes up right and wrong, or... Does God do something because there's a standard of right and wrong beyond him by which he has to look back out and say, well, I'm going to do what's good because there's the standard. That's supposed to be a dilemma. It's not a dilemma at all. Why? Because there's a third option. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't look back to another standard. He is the standard. God is the standard. The buck has to stop somewhere. If he's looking back, then he's not God. There's somebody else who's God. So, so what's, what's a better standard then? Um, Wait, stop, so- stop, stop. What do you mean by better? Something that we can agree is better, based on our well-being and happiness. Okay, but stop right there. You see, we're running into the problem the Nazis ran into. If we agree that it's best for us to kill Jews, does that make it right? Is it? Is it? it I mean, can we can we figure out if it's better? Like, it's not just. What oh, do you well, mean I by better? better? You got no standard of. of will it will it increase uh, overall human happiness? But stop and right there! Well-being? Stop! 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 Please, I, I, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm saying you're, you keep importing moral language. Why is it right to be happy? I think it's kind of you're, you're making it sound like it's circular. It we is. Have, we, we agree that it is good to be happy. It is good to be alive. But if it makes we, me we happy, if it makes me happy to rape and kill, should I do it? No. 
But okay. morality is not about you. It's about how you affect other people. Who said? That's what morality is. Who said? That's what mo- the definition of morality is not right, about. Right, but you, how- need, you need a standard beyond us to adjudicate, don't we? Because if I'm Hitler and you're Mother Teresa, who's to say who's right? I'm saying you base what is right on the standard. Like what you have, standard? You say, you say the standard is whatever God says. I'm saying that my standard would be what increases human well-being, what decreases suffering. Okay, but that's, like that. but that's a subjective standard right there. Right. I, I'm t- it is subjective, but I'm saying we all agree. So when, whenever I say that it's wrong to do that, I'm appealing to the standard, which, I mean, I think you agree with mostly what, what God says um, in the Bible is also what is right and wrong. What, I just don't attribute it to a God. I'm saying we value the same things. Okay. Well, if we, we value the same things, that's, that's all well and good. But you need, in my view, you need a place to ground these moral principles. Okay? Otherwise, everything is subjective. And it's just Mother Teresa's opinion against Hitler's opinion. I don't have enough faith to believe that the Holocaust was just a matter of opinion. I think there's a moral standard beyond me and beyond you which you intuitively understand because it's written on your heart like mine and Christopher Hitchens the same way, that certain things really are morally right and other things are morally wrong regardless of what anybody thinks about it. Suppose the Nazis had won World War II and and took over all of uh, civilization and brainwashed everybody to think that killing Jews was a good thing. Would that make killing Jews a good thing? No, because there's a standard beyond us. That's the whole moral law argument. But let's keep moving because you and I can talk more afterwards if you want. But I know some other people have questions and we only have time for 40 or 50 more. <laughs> no, we got to go soon. So. And we can come back tomorrow. And How many can come back tomorrow to hear part two? How many will bring other people with them to hear part two? How many are not coming back? You think I'm an idiot. <laughs> I could be. Who knows? Yes, sir. Uh, hey, Dr. Turing. Uh, I, I feel with the last question we are kind of hitting on this, but um, I've read a lot of people that will respond to the idea of morality in this sort of way, and I think this might be what you're getting at. And you said suppose that uh, Germany did win World War II and we all uh, were told to hate Jews. Would that make it right? And um, what if people say, yeah, it would, but it didn't because we are, like uh, Hawking says, scientific determinism says that, like, they kind of put a – Darwinistic view on morality, and they say that survival of the fittest, but it's actually survival of the majority when it comes to uh, morality, and that the majority rules. And uh, yeah, in Germany, the majority, or not the majority, but the majority of morality, yeah, yeah, um, said that we should kill Jews. Yeah, but on the global scale, the majority said no, you can't do that. And so scientific determinism said the majority rules. You know. And got the, I guess, the world back on track. How do you respond to someone that says morality is just uh, whatever the majority thinks? Like I said before, that whatever the majority thinks, you could have a majority of people say it's wrong to kill Jews or wrong to torture babies. That doesn't make it right. That's the whole point. There's something beyond what we think that is right. We can, most of the time, if we're not, uh, if our, if our moral sensibilities aren't polluted by culture or by indoctrination like Hitler indoctrinated a whole a whole generation uh, most of the time we understand what's right and wrong very easily 
but that can be knocked out of calibration. And when that happens, then the majority can do things that are just immoral. Look, if there is no moral law, then there can be no such thing as social reform. There can be no such thing as societies getting better or worse because without a best, you don't know what better or worse is. There is a standard beyond us. The question is, what is that standard grounded in? If it's just grounded in human opinion, then it's not objective. It's subjective. It's in the subject. If it's grounded in God, then it's in the object, God. And if he doesn't change, he's the standard by which everything else is measured. All right, two more. We'll get, we'll get Zach up here. Three more. We'll get the lady in the back. We'll get Zach and this gentleman. Yes, sir. Okay, this is along a similar line, I guess, of questioning, but it takes more of a reductionist view. Uh-huh. And my question is, what would you respond to people who say that the morality is just adaptive behavior? It's, I guess this is an argument that Dawkins would make from selfish genes, that okay. this type of behavior just is adaptive, and so genes that encode for this behavior if it is adaptive, basically multiply. Like okay, say. then I would say nobody should be in prison because they just have bad molecules. Secondly, Dawkins wouldn't know that that's adaptive behavior unless he's outside it. How does he even know what's adaptive unless he can take an objective viewpoint above it? Thirdly, if evolution is true, you shouldn't believe it's true because reason doesn't exist. We're just molecules in motion, so how would you even know that? Alvin Plantinga from Notre Dame University has a, a great article on this, is why naturalism is self-defeating. You wouldn't even know naturalism were true if we're just molecules in motion. You wouldn't even know there was no God if there isn't a God because there'd be no way to know right from wrong. There'd be no way to even know truth if we're just molecules in motion. The entire reductionist, uh, reductionist viewpoint is, is self-defeating, just like Crick, just like Hawking. To a certain extent, even Kant is self-defeating, as we mentioned before. So reductionism does, doesn't get you anywhere. Does that make sense? Well, I think the argument is that um, as long as the genes proliferate, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's no thought behind it. It's just that if the behavior is adaptive, for example, if moral behavior leads to proliferation more genes, you run into the like, argument of kin selection. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, but you see, but rape can lead to spreading my genes around. Does that mean that rape is a good thing? You know, Dawkins is honest about this. Dawkins while he's a Darwinist, says, I hate Darwinist morality because he knows where it leads. It leads to the survival of the fittest and whoever has the most power wins. And he knows that's not a good thing. Why? Because he has to borrow from the theistic worldview in order to make his system work. He has to borrow from God in order to say that Darwinism is not a good morality. How does he know what good is? He's borrowing Atheism really is, you can't, be a, you can't be a consistent atheist. You continually have to borrow notions from a theistic worldview. You have to borrow morality. You have to borrow reason. You have to borrow mathematics. These are all immaterial realities that don't exist in a materialistic worldview. Well, thank you. I, I think that probably we could talk about it later because I know there's other questions, but uh, I think we'll just leave it at that for now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, sir. A lady in the back over here, and then we'll come up here to Zach, and we'll come back tomorrow night, Lord willing, and we won't talk about Weinberg or the University of Texas A&M. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay, um, I wanted to offer a correction, and then also I have a question. Yes. Uh, the first one was <clears throat> when you were answering somebody's question earlier, you said that God gave 
Adam Eve because he was lonely? Was it because he was lonely or because Did he I was... say that? Did I say he, God created Adam and Eve because he was lonely? When did I say that? What did I say? I thought I heard you say that you, or that God gave. Oh, that he needed a companion. Well, he needed a companion, but I thought you said it. Oh, maybe I I didn't mean that. Whatever I said. That was stupid. Sorry. Okay. I said that he needed a companion. I I shouldn't have said lonely if I said that. Sorry. Go ahead. That was my correction. All right, cool. And then um, my question was, earlier in the lecture, you mentioned a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. Um, I'm just going to read it really fast. It's Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Mm-hmm. This isn't my question, but this leads to my question. Does that mean that earth and heaven converge into one, or that earth is recreated and there's still two separate entities? What does that mean? Well, that is a very good question. A new heaven and a new earth. Uh, I think you'll find different Christian theologians saying different things about that. So I don't know if I can take a position on it with any authority. But I know that this world, this heaven, this earth, what we know as the terrestrial heaven and terrestrial earth, will be recreated. God's heaven is uh, uh, unstained by sin. But when we talk about the heavens here, we're talking about, you know, the stars and the galaxies and all that. Uh, That's going to be put back in a pristine position. And so the second law of thermodynamics won't affect us. Uh, we won't run down. We won't uh, get tired. We won't get hungry. We can eat as much as we want and not get fat. So, <laughs> okay. You guys whooping over that too, huh? <laughs> All right. Okay, so that leads to my question. For some of the theologians that believe that, the, that there will still be two entities? Well, it I- depends on what you mean by two entities. Do you mean... What do you mean by two entities? Like right now, there's a heaven and there's an earth. And as, as Christians, we believe that one day we will die and we will transcend into heaven. Yes. But so, in a certain sense, we're going to have physical bodies when we transition into heaven. And is God a physical being? This is where things get mysterious, friends. God is not a physical being. Jesus in his, in his human body has a physical body but god doesn't have a physical being god is immaterial god is spirit john 4 24 so in what sense will we see god for who he is will we see him with our eyes or does see mean we'll understand god for who he is i think it's the latter because you won't see uh, a being that is uh, immaterial you will know god for who he is that's what C means, I think, in that passage. That's called the beatific vision in 1 John 3. Okay, well, I don't want to take up too much time. I was just going to ask um, a really out there kind of question. Um, That's okay. We're talking about galaxies, so go ahead. All right, cool. Uh, so if let's just say God does... Um, I'm speaking very stupidly right now, but I'm just trying to be very simple. Um, Let's just say that that verse means that earth is, quote-unquote, recreated, if you want to take it in that way. Okay. Could that mean that the lost souls are then re-put onto earth and given another chance? That, that was the whole point of my... Oh, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I think that, uh, according to Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed man once to die and then the judgment. 
So, no, I think everybody has the chance. It's right here. Okay. But again, God is not going to force anybody into heaven against their will. Christopher Hitchens says going to heaven for him would be hell. He's true. He, he, he doesn't want to be in the presence of God. That's what hell is. It's separation from God. Hell is separation for people who don't want there to be a God. Up here, right here for Zach. Right. And this will be the last question. So hell is separation. God does not force anybody into heaven or hell against their will. We decide. And that's what a loving God does. Go ahead, Zach. This isn't really a question, but kind of a theological comment on an earlier question about the seven days in Genesis mm-hmm. and then whether that's stages. But I was thinking, um, I think if you read the Bible, you see a lot of poetic language like that, talking about seven days. And also, I mean, things like 40 days and 40 nights. And, mm-hmm. and Jonah and the whale, like he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And I thought of, you know, whenever Jesus was telling the Pharisees, he says, none will be... No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And he uses that. If you take that literally, it wouldn't match up because Jesus was technically, he rose from the dead in three days, but he was dead for two nights. And so... Parts of three days can mean three days, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just and a so, way of saying... Uh, a truth it's, in a, yeah it's like saying a truth but using it in a poetic right, sense right. and I think it can be applied back to Genesis saying um, the seven days in Genesis which I think are seven stages of creation I think it was used in a poetic way of um, tying it back to the Jews and saying this is the six day work week and then you rest on the seventh day it could be there's a lot of different interpretations out there but that God created is more certain than when so you can investigate that all you want and have all the fun you want. But uh, the more important result is that God created, not when. So I hope to see you tomorrow, friends. Thanks for being here. And I'll be back at the book table.